welcome everybody to a dual show. So I got Crystal Kyle and friends for you. I'm going to be interviewing, honestly, one of my idols, Tom Hartman. So that's going to be really fun. I'm super excited for that. But you're not just getting a Crystal Kyle and friends right now. You're also getting a mini secular talk show as well. You're also getting the Kyle Klinsky show as well. And the reason for that is um, I just did two live shows, one in New York City on Broadway at a place called the Town Hall. And then we also did a show in uh, in Boston. I think it was called the Wilbur Theater, the W Theater, something like that. Um, and it was phenomenal. Thank you so much to, for everybody who came out. Um, we had a blast and I hope you guys had fun as well. I, you know, I don't do live shows often. So whenever I do, I kind of soak up the experience. It's really cool feeding off of the energy of the crowd. Um, so yeah, it was fun all around, but because of that, I, I did miss uh, an episode of the Kyle Klinsky show. So I want to go ahead and make up for that a little bit uh, here for you guys. And also there's some stories that I've just been chomping at the bit to, uh, to dive into. So, uh, there's a bunch of stuff to get to. They're all either really, really interesting and important or fun. <laughs> so let's start here with, uh, Alex Jones. So, um, Alex Jones, of course, was involved in this, uh, fiasco, this, this carnival of an interview where he had on Kanye West and Nick, Fu Nick Fuentes. And I think Alex is a little bit embarrassed about that interview because he wanted it to go a certain way. And it didn't go that way. I mean, he was throwing some softballs down the center of the plate at Kanye, teeing him up to be like, no, I'm not a Nazi. No, I don't love Hitler. You know, I'm, I'm just a, an independent-minded free thinker who has heterodox thoughts or whatever. That's what Alex was expecting Kanye to say and do. And he didn't do that. I mean, to sum it up, as you guys know, he basically said, I love Hitler. I love Nazis. So my, my opponents are correct. My detractors are correct. And so he made Alex look a little silly. It's the first interview I think I've ever seen where Alex Jones speaks for not a majority of the time. Um, and then also in retrospect, Alex learned more about Nick Fuentes, that he is sort of like a card carrying Nazi and white supremacist and white nationalist. And Alex is, look, his lane is I'm the conspiracy guy. Like that's his lane. His lane is I'm the conspiracy guy. And to the extent that you can, uh, you know, understand the core of his politics i mean it might be like libertarian-ish right-wing conspiracy theory like that's probably the best descriptor i can give so he's not an all-out nazi he's not uh, you know as extreme as somebody like kanye west or nick fuentes so after the fact he learned about like what went down he feels like he got played um and alex jones goes on steven Crowder's show to talk about it and this happens <laughs> i didn't know that nick fuentes was really a nazi lover yeah, I, I'd had him on over the years three or four times whenever he was being debanked or censored, and he would be like, "No, I'm not a Nazi. I just care about white people's rights." So I think this this whole thing was a real coming out. Uh, and I'll be honest with you, uh, especially with the Fuentes thing, and I'll still have Fuentes on. I believe in the First Amendment, uh, but there's a real creepy factor with this Hitler stuff. And then I also noticed that Richard Spencer came out and said, yay, blew Jones away, because Jones is really controlled by the liberal narrative oh, that boy. Hitler's bad. But but those of us that know the dark, powerful beauty of Hitler and, and of the darkness and of the strength, and it's like some homoerotic you know, thing over Hitler, it, it, that is kind of what's going on. There's this Hitler fetish, and no, I'm not into dudes in fancy, you know, peacock military uniforms <laughs> that, that – 
that, by the way, got 22 million Germans killed. So the biggest killer of Germans in history, if you like Germanic people, and I'm, you know, I'm basically half German, have a, a lot of German roots, is Hitler. Hitler was a disaster. Hitler was an occultist. Hitler was a pedophile. Hitler was horrible. Screw Hitler. I, Burn in hell Hitler. I, I, and, and the left uses Hitler to push their communist agenda that is basically just as bad and authoritarian to call all of us Hitler. And so people are so sick of being called Hitler. They go, hey, if Hitler's so powerful, let's just say we're with Hitler. And that's what these people are doing. And I felt like I was sucked in to a giant publicity stunt. Now, now I'm, I'm, I'm not mad at either person. I understand that they probably even believe what they're doing. But no, I saw a whole bunch of programs like the Young Turds and all of them say, Jones is just mad they let the secret out. Jones likes Hitler. No, I hate authoritarians. I hate communists. I hate Xi Jinping. I hate Hitler. I hate Mao Zedong. I hate Joseph uh, you know, Stalin. I hate Fidel Castro. I hate Hugo Chavez. Yeah. I love George Washington. I love Thomas Jefferson. I love American strength and freedom and power and Christianity and open societies and capitalism and free speech. And I want it back now. So burn in hell, Hitler and Stalin and Mao. Burn in hell. This is what I told Pierce Morgan. Hitler took the guns. Stalin took hey, the guns. Hey. Mao took the guns. And if you try to take our guns, 1776 will commence again. <laughs> look, the first time I watched that, I'm not going to lie, I was sitting there with Crystal, and me me and her look at each other, and we're like, God damn, he's such a good broadcaster. Like, it, obviously on ideology, out to lunch, wacky, kooky, yada yada, you guys know the gist of it, but in terms of, like, how he delivers it, pfft, it's, it's crazy. He's on another level, dog. He's on another level. And it looks like... I mean, tell, tell me if you guys agree with this, but there are times, like, you could tell when Alex is, like, super drunk or on cocaine or something, just fucked up on some sort of a substance, and it comes through because his delivery is, like, not nearly as good, and he seems more unhinged. It looks like in this, like, he's not drinking, and it, it's almost like he's forcing the rant a little bit, you know what I'm saying? He seems a little more lucid than he has uh, previously, so I don't know if he quit drinking or if he quit doing any sort of drugs or if he's just taking less of a substance, but he seems more with it than he has previously because in previous rants he seems like he's, his face is red he's genuinely flying off off the handle here it seems like he's almost like forcing the rant a little bit you know what i'm saying but anyways there's a lot to go through there he goes um you know i thought nick fuentes he says i'm not a nazi i just care about white people's rights so, and so alex is surprised that a guy who would say that is a nazi alex you clown of all clowns how do you not know about dog whistles. And by the way, the whole I believe in white's rights thing is barely a dog whistle. It's barely a dog whistle. Let me ask you a question. So yeah, Kanye West wore a White Lives Matter shirt. Literally every other person who has ever worn a White Lives Matter shirt, if they're being honest with you, they would tell you like, yes, I'm a fascist and I'm a Nazi and I'm very, very far right. There is no like what, like enlightened centrist who decides like I'm a liberal but I wore this White Lives Matter shirt to make an ironic contrarian point or some shit. That doesn't happen, Alex. So it's just, this is just, it's dog whistle politics 101. And this is the thing, like, so people would go after the left for casually willy-nilly throwing around like, oh, you're a racist, you're a sexist, you're an anti-Semite, or whatever the fuck. And sometimes, yeah, I get that sometimes maybe the left overreaches with their criticisms. But this is, but the right does the opposite. So you can have a clear-cut example of like, that motherfucker's a Nazi. And they're like, I don't see it. I don't see the Nazi. I don't know what you're talking about. All I see is a guy who's ironically doing a, a Heil Hitler sign. All I see is a guy wearing a White Lives Matter shirt. All I see is a guy posting like hidden swastikas. 
It's like, no, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar, as Freud said. Sometimes if it walks like a duck and talks like a duck, it's a fucking duck. And it's not like, tee-hee-hee, LOL, I was joking. I'm just a shit poster on 8chan or 4chan. No, I, look, Nick Fuentes has come out and said this. He said, this, there's times when he's been more strategic and less strategic. And in the more strategic times, he says, yeah, hide behind irony, sarcasm, jokes, like try to cover what you really believe, but like play footsie with it. And then there are other times where he just, you know, drops it and he's much more honest. And he's like, yeah, I believe in dictatorship. I believe in a Catholic theocracy. I'm a white nationalist, et cetera, et cetera. Et cetera. So, man, um, then I'm not going to lie. I did enjoy the part where Alex says these guys have like a homoerotic fetish for for Hitler. Because you know what? Kind of true. It does seem a little bit homoerotic. It does. It does. And especially a guy like Richard Spencer. You know what I'm saying? So I like that. But I, I also can't help but make the point that like in their mind, they go like, if I disagree with you and you have what I think is a bad ideology, they immediately think like, you must be gay. <laughs> right? Like, it's not like Nazi and fascist is bad enough on its own. It's just like, you're also homosexual, which is condemnable. So that's that's where his mind goes right to. Um, and then no, the very interesting point there when he says he got, you know, Hitler got 22 million Germans killed. So if you care about Germans, then this guy was a disaster. And it's like, huh, why did you phrase it that way? Like, oh, I'm so concerned about the Germans that got killed. Because you could have easily said he got, you know, whatever, eight, 6 million, 10 million, whatever it was, Jews killed, but it's almost like he knows if I stress like he killed this this many Jews or this many Roma or whatever, or this many disabled people or gay people or communists, because Hitler, of course, killed the communists as well. If he brings up any of those groups, the audience would be like, mm, maybe that, uh, yeah, maybe that wasn't the worst thing in the world. But he he brings up Germans because he knows, well, that'll make the uh, the audience go, oh, don't kill the good, fine German folks. Right. But if you bring up the the minority groups that they're not in love with, then maybe they wouldn't have as visceral a reaction. Um, and uh, he says Hitler was an occult, occultist and a pedophile. Uh, he says. Th this part is uh, sort of classic stuff from Alex Jones and the far right in general, that it's the left that pushes their communist agenda and that pushes people into Hitler's arms. That was one of the points that he made in there. And um, no, like, look, I'm, I'm sick of this. Like, people have agency. People have agency. Like, own the shit that you do and that you believe. I hate this thing of like, you know, uh, the left was mean to me. And so now I'm a goose stepping Nazi. It's like, no, it, it, you, okay. Even if everybody on the left was the biggest asshole in the world to me, I would still be on the left. Why? Because my politics is not petty and spite-driven and reactionary. My politics is like, let me see a list of the issues, I'll tell you where I fall on those issues, and then you could put an accurate label on me as a result of it. That's the way adults do politics. This, like, childish thing of like, <laughs> the group was mean to me, so I went to the other group, because they were being poopy faces. <laughs> so, it's, it, notice, it, it always goes back to the left's fault. It's always the left's fault. The left did this, and then I reacted like this. Okay, you could have just not reacted like that. You could have just not become a Nazi. Maybe you became a Nazi because you're a Nazi. Maybe you, maybe you actually, you know, went down that rabbit hole and you have agency the entire time that you went down that rabbit hole. Um, and then the end, that was classic, classic Alex at the end. Uh, 1776 will commence again. He's done that one before. He did it on Piers Morgan's show back in the day. Um, 
But if you notice, what he does is he, you know, he does he puts all the the authoritarians together, all the dictator dictators together, and this is his way of being like, yeah, I don't like Hitler and Nazism, but I also don't like the communist dictators. So hey, audience, which is very right wing, you know, it's they're just as big of a problem, if not a bigger problem too. So way to do that. And then when he brings up like, well, I love George Washington, I love Thomas Jefferson, and I don't know if you caught it there, he slips in, and I love capitalism. Oh, you do? Well, then I guess we're going to have to ax that whole portion where you said you hate authoritarianism. Because authoritarian uh, capitalism is, by its very nature, authoritarian. That's not my opinion. That's a fact. How does a corporation work? How does a company work? There's one person at the top, and they're the dictator. They're the tyrant. They get to call the shots. And if you're underneath them, you have to listen to them. So it's so funny because in this country, we sing the virtues of political democracy, but nobody ever, you know, moves that into the economic sphere as well. It's like we believe in political democracy, but, you know, economic tyranny. That's that's what we believe in. And it, there's a massive contradiction there. And again, a guy like Alex Jones, who harps against authoritarians all day long, doesn't recognize the biggest authoritarian impacting most people's lives on a day-to-day -day basis, which is your fucking asshole boss who's telling you what to do in no uncertain terms. So I just, I find it so hollow. Like, I'm anti-authoritarian, unless it's the kind of authoritarianism that I'm used to with a company, with a boss, with a rigid hierarchy in the workplace. Most of people's, you know, uh, time in a day, most of your the hours where you're awake, you're taking orders from some schmuck and, and you have to do it because you have to pay the fucking bills. Is that fair? Is that just? Is that a good system? No, that's authoritarian. By the way, the other thing is, oh, I love America. I love uh, capitalism. There's so many deeply authoritarian aspects of this country. The drug war is massively authoritarian. We have more people in prison than any other country on earth. And we lock people up and throw away the key because they were smoking weed or selling weed and that's authoritarian. There are very authoritarian aspects. Our torture program, deeply authoritarian. NSA spying, deeply authoritarian. And it's also funny you bring up all these, you know, these mass killers throughout history who are so bad, but then also, yeah, I love the founding fathers. Well, hate to break it to you, Alex. There's many of the founding fathers own slaves, right? So that's authoritarian. That's as authoritarian as it gets. I'm going to treat a human being like they are property. Deeply, deeply authoritarian. Never mind the Native American genocide, et cetera. But anyway, um, Classic, classic Alex Jones. Look, I will say this. I I do love this like sort of civil war on the far right now. Um, the, the downside is it makes people like Alex Jones and Steven Crowder and Ben Shapiro look more reasonable than they are. That's the downside. But the upside of it is there's now like an open war between the genuine, legit white nationalist, white supremacist, Nazi elements and just the standard far right types. You know what I'm saying? And I certainly, for all of their fucking flaws, and there's a million of them, and I could talk all day about how I disagree with all these guys, the Alex Jones, Steven Crowder, Ben Shapiro, they are not full Kanye West. They're just not. Now, there are some people, by the way, who are just mad that Kanye is, like, giving up the game. Like, I was with you until you crossed the line that none of us are allowed to cross about saying you love Hitler and Nazis. Some of them are just like, ah, you're giving the game away, and I don't like that. I don't think that's Alex. I don't think that's Alex. I think the th main thing that drives his his politics, again, is hardcore conspiracy thinking. And But the actual label that would apply best to him is that he's sort of like a libertarian right-winger. And so 
there is a categorical difference between that and a Nazi, a straight up Nazi, even though I could argue with, you know, both of them until I'm blue in the face. But anyway, there you have it. Alex Jones, classic Alex Jones rant. Again, the best part is going after saying there's a weird homoerotic Hitler fetish that they seem to have. It's, It's really gross. So Kanye West, after his interview with Alex Jones, which went super duper mega viral, where he talked, apparently the interview was three hours long, and he managed to say he loves Hitler and loves the Nazis like 712 times in that interview. Um, This thing has spread far and wide, even though Alex is not on any of the main platforms anymore, you know, but this interview still got out because it was just that big of a deal. Um, Kanye decided to do another interview. And I think this was literally right after the Alex Jones interview because he's wearing the exact same thing. So he went from Alex's studio to the studio of, of Gavin McGinnis. And we got more insanity from Kanye. Watch this. So you're president of the United States. The, the Hitler thing does not hurt your campaign. First day I, I, It in helps office. my campaign. Okay, it helps your campaign. Yeah. You're in office. It's day one. And they go, someone walks in and they go, so what are we going to do about these Jews? What do you say? What do you mean do about them? What, what do you well, is there about? any action involved? Like they, they're overly represented in med. Lots of people who don't believe in Christ. I would, I would probably wager that in your average hospital in New York, maybe a third or less believe in Christ. So are you suggesting we get rid of two thirds of the doctors? Not get rid of, like not violently get rid of them. Fire I think, them? I think that Jews are very intelligent, but they don't deserve to be in charge of everything because they don't put Christ and, and well, how do you legislate that? They need to work for Christians. Jews should work for Christians. I'll hire a Jewish person in a second. If I knew they weren't a spy and I could look through their phone and follow them to their house and have a camera all in their living room. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that the Jews are particularly ethnomasochistic. If you look at all the blowback to Ye, they're, they're very defensive. They're very paranoid, you could say, almost pathologically paranoid about threats to their well-being. I agree with you that liberalism is a poison. I'm not a liberal. And I think that liberalism has poisoned the well for white people. But if you look at white kids, there's nothing, I don't think, intrinsic in white people that makes them hate themselves. Like when I was a kid, kids loved Hitler in the sense that we see the videos and we see the propaganda and the symbols and there's something compelling about it just on an aesthetic level. What? I've never heard that before. When you were a little kid, like eight years old, all your friends liked Hitler? Well, not maybe not eight years old, but on 4chan and on the oh, internet. Okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. Very Teenage. popular. Blacks are overrepresented in violent crime. But when you meet an individual black person, you don't apply that. You start with a fresh slate every time you meet someone. Do you do that with Jews? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> this intervention isn't going very well. <laughs> There's a collusion of Jewish attorneys, managers, and everything else you can think of that they don't abort their children. They only marry within their tribe, right? And then they'll give America porn, not just black people, but poor white people and Mexican people. They do, they, they use porn in wars. It's like gas. We want to talk about gas chambers. This is the gas chamber. It's a silent killer. And it's legal and they put it on every single block and they use my ex-wife to sell it. And they they also they want to dumb us down. It's awesome for a presidential campaign. Yeah. To have someone that's honest, that understands the state of the world and that's ready to listen to what the American people need. 
But Hitler's got a pretty bad reputation. <laughs> well, who made that reputation? That was made by Jewish people. Well, the murdering Jews was a pretty big part of his bad reputation. Yeah, but some of it's incorrect. Also, the Holocaust is not the only Holocaust. So okay. for them to take that and claim, we're in, we have abortion right now. That's, you, that's eugenics. That's genocide. That's a, that's a Holocaust that we're dealing with. I mean, where do you even begin, man? Notice the point at the end. Massive contradiction within that one point. It's, and he said this on Alex Jones, too. The Holocaust didn't happen. It's just, that's just factually incorrect. So he denies the Holocaust, and he goes on to say, but there's a, uh, it's not the only Holocaust that happened. Other Holocausts happened. Well, wait, which is it? You got to pick one or the other. You know, you got to say, okay, it happened, but a lot of other ones happened too, or it didn't happen, and it, it's, it's a massive contradiction. He's just like, any argument he can come up with to shit on Jews more, he just does it. I mean, he's, he's so far down the rabbit hole. He says, uh, Gavin McGinnis, and by the way, Gavin McGinnis is pretty far right, and even he's like, oh, Jesus Christ. Um, he says, well, Hitler has a bad reputation, and, and Kanye goes, well, that's because the Jews made that. The Jews made his reputation. I don't think the Jews made his reputation. I think everybody with fucking eyes and a bare minimum moral compass looked at the body stacked 100 feet tall, and they were like, Jesus Christ, whoever did this is, is an animal is a monster, is a barbarian. Actually, yeah, yeah, the Jews made his reputation. That's why. It's, it's those, those evil conniving Jews that brainwashed you into disliking the mass murderer who tried to take over the world by force. Uh, um, the porn part, oh man. Now look, I, he says, I think he himself, he may have even admitted it, that he has a porn addiction. I'm not 100% sure on that, but there's this weird projection thing on everybody else. They're like, since I couldn't handle that shit, nobody can handle that shit. And I hate to tell you, Kanye, but the overwhelming majority of Americans, first of all, like everybody watches porn, right? Unless they're like asexual, okay? And there's the tiny percentage that's asexual, but obviously over 90% of the country, not asexual. So everybody watches porn. And most people can handle it just fine. They're not jerking off all day to the point where they miss work or they forget to pick their kids up from school. But like, it just doesn't happen as much as you think it does because it may have impacted you. And the idea that you ban it, and he said Jews pushed porn on America in an attempt to like take down America. He said it's like the gas chamber. It's the silent killer. It's not, it's not even close to a killer. It's called, you know, seven minutes of pleasure. It's called a random Friday afternoon with nothing to do. Let me boost my serotonin levels a touch. It, this, it's so deranged in so many ways. You get the sense that he genuinely like fights himself on it, right? And it's amazing that every time he boots up that computer, he's going like, oh, the fucking Jews. It's the Jews that did this to me. Oh, like Kanye. Come on, man. Come on. And but I, love, I love how his platform is. Hitler was based and I'd like to ban porn. Yeah, that, that's going to be a winning platform. That's going to that's gonna get him over 300 electoral votes. What are we talking about here? Um, Gavin McGinnis made a phenomenal point there, and yay, it's totally right over his head. Uh, he goes, well, hold on now. Statistically, black people are overrepresented in violent crime. Does that mean that, you know, you assume every black person is a criminal, or do you treat anybody that you meet with a blank slate? And then he's like, 
So do, do you have a blank slate when you meet a Jewish person? And Kanye goes, no. So in other words, anytime Kanye meets a Jewish person, he thinks like, well, there was that Jewish guy who did a fucked up contract with me and fucked me over, and, and this guy's to blame. It, it's, it is like classic, classic anti-Semitism, bigotry, xenophobia. I mean, it's so above and beyond in every single way. Um, Nick Fuentes telling on himself there says, when I was a kid, kids loved Hitler. No, Nick. No, they didn't. He Like, do you really think you're weird sheltered upbringing where you're on 4chan or 8chan that like this is this generalizes to a majority of americans or even like a you know a healthy minority of americans no it was all it was you freaks and maladjusted incel weirdos on these message boards that oh you like hitler and it's so it's such an embarrassing admission too because he goes on to say there's really something compelling on, on an aesthetic level oh so a guy gave a speech and had some shiny bells and whistles around him and you nutting your pants over it. There's a lot of people that give speeches that don't end up committing genocide. It's just so embarrassing in so many ways. I've seen like every World War II documentary, uh, you know, ever. And I've, I've seen the speeches. I've seen the marches. I've seen, you know, uh, everything that there is to see about uh, Nazism and engineering and this and that. The idea that you just, you know, fall head over heels in love with this genocidal maniac because, like, the uniforms were cool, right? Which, again, is what he's sort of hinting at here on an aesthetic level. It was so amazing. How embarrassing is that? How that's so not serious intellectually. Uh, he's asked, point blank, uh, what are we going to do about, about the Jews? And then Kanye answers, he thinks Jews shouldn't be allowed to be in charge of anything because they don't serve Christ. Um, they have they have to work for Christians. And then he says, let's also like do mass surveillance of them. Yeah. Okay. All right, Kanye. I mean, how do you even respond to that? So what, like 70% of the, of the country roughly are Christian. So what, you want to set up like a permanent underclass for everybody that's not Christian. And by the way, how do you determine who's uh, one of the good Christians and who's one of the bad Christians, right? Because there are plenty of Christians who have healthy disagreement. You can find uh, liberal Christians all over this country. You know, you could find conservative evangelical fundamentalist Christians all over this country. Do Catholics count? Because Nick, Nick Fuentes is a Catholic. Don't know if you know this, but historically, there's quite a disagreement between the Protestants and the Catholics. But Kanye, I don't know if he doesn't know the difference between, you know, a Protestant and a Catholic, but he's got Nick Fuentes there as a Catholic. Do you count them as part of the, the, the good Christians? All right, so let's assume for a second it's, okay, all the Christians are the quote-unquote good Christians. You have to call yourself that. Well, that's still like 30% of the country, atheists, agnostics, uh, Muslims, Jews, uh, Hindus, Buddhists, whatever. They're all like, you can't, you can't have your own business. You know, you can't do your own thing. You have to work for, for a Christian. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's Hitler love and it's rampant theocracy. And of course, it's Kanye's interpretation of what his religion is that he wants to enforce. So like I said, ban porn. Well, what else? What else is in the Bible that you'd like to, you know, rigidly enforce on people? Did you know that there's a ban on shellfish in the Bible? Would you, nobody's allowed to eat shrimp anymore? Is that something that Kanye would implement? Obviously, he's deeply, deeply anti-abortion, even though there's a portion of the Bible that recommends abortion if your wife cheats on you. They talk about how she should drink bitter water, which is sort of like a poison that makes you miscarry, and her belly will swell. And if she does miscarry, aka have an abortion after she drinks the bitter water, then that wasn't your baby. That was the baby of the person she cheated with. 
This is in the Bible. They prescribe abortion at a certain point in the Bible. He doesn't fucking know that. He doesn't care. He's just, he's, he needs meds. He needs meds. Um, and then, of course, uh, classic, classic Kanye moment where he says he thinks the Hitler thing, quote, helps his campaign. Does he realize how many Americans died fighting Hitler? I think the number is 400,000 Americans died fighting the Nazi fascist scourge that was trying to take over the world. And by the way, they had succeeded in taking over most of Europe. And you think, what, people are going to be like, yeah, that's what I want. A guy who is literally with the enemy, with the face of pure fucking evil. Look, it's, I mean, on the one hand, it's like everybody kind of wants to start, um, ignoring Kanye, but on the other hand, he's still Kanye West. He's an A-plus list celebrity, and uh, he's got incredible wide reach, and he's running for president, and he's going through a psychotic episode. We can refute his ideas while also stating the obvious, which is, hey, dude, for the love of God, please take your medicine. Again, the most ironic thing is he keeps going after this doctor, this therapist, who prescribed him medicine for his bipolar disorder, and it's like, that's the dude who is trying to fucking save you, bro. For real. He was trying to save you. If he took his lithium, the highs wouldn't be as high and the lows wouldn't be as low. And the period of depression that's coming for him is going to be astonishing because clearly he's on an insane manic trip where you get euphoria, delusions of grandeur. You think you're the best. You think you've never said a dumb thing in your life. You can't stop talking, all that. Well, the low is going to be just as low as the high is high. And so nobody around him is keeping it real with him. And I think he pushed everybody away who was close with him at one time. So it's a real, it's a real sad thing to see. Um, you just get, you just get on your medicine. That's all I can say. I'm ending it on a serious note here, but get on your medicine. So Vladimir Putin, um, in the midst of the war in Ukraine, uh, he decided to crack down domestically. And this is something, look, you see this time and time again with authoritarian leaders. So, you know, after the U S invaded Iraq and, uh, occupied the country, destroyed the country, jacked the oil, all that stuff. Uh, in one of the midterm elections, George W. Bush and the Republicans ran on adding a constitutional amendment to the U.S. Constitution to ban gay marriage. That was one of the things that they ran on in one of the midterm races. I'm not sure. I think it was 2006, maybe they ran on it. So in, like in the heart of the Iraq war, what they're trying to do, change the conversation. Talk about this. Squirrel. So that's the goal. The goal is, let you know, just deflect, change the conversation, because obviously Putin is waging an illegal war in Ukraine and um, things are not going too well. And so that's what he's doing. But it, what they're doing is super duper extreme. So he signed a new LGBTQ propaganda law. And uh, I'll tell you a little bit about what it does here. Quote, the new laws make it illegal to promote or praise LGBTQ relationships, publicly express non-heterosexual orientations, or suggest that they are normal. You're not allowed to suggest that a gay relationship is normal. That if somebody's gay, that's okay. You're not allowed to say that. The package of amendments signed by Putin include heavier penalties for anyone promoting non-traditional sexual relations and or preferences, as well as pedophilia and gender transition. So in other words, they're saying um, you're not allowed to publicly endorse pedophilia. That seems like kind of obvious in a sense. I mean, 
people have free speech. So they could say it. Usually it's like you can't act on it. He's saying you can't even say it in this instance. Um, and gender transition. So in other words, trans issues are sort of banned as well. Um, you're not allowed to say being trans is normal. Being trans is okay. Under the new law, it will be banned across the internet. Wow, this is real crackdown across the board if it's even on the internet. Media, books, audiovisual services, cinema, and advertising. So you can't even have like a movie with a gay person in it. Under the new law, individuals can be fined up to 400,000 rubles, which is about um, $6,370 for LGBTQ propaganda, and up to 200,000 rubles, which is $3,185 for quote, demonstrations of LGBT and information that encourages a change of gender among teenagers. So the highest fine you can get is about $80,000 um, or $64,000. And that's if a legal entity does these things. So if a company releases a movie with a gay character, that's what happens. Um, and not only did Putin approve the law, but it was also approved by Russia's upper and lower houses as well. So it's not just him. It's not just him. They're going full authoritarian. So, look, again, classic move. You're doing an illegal offensive invasion against a country that didn't attack you. Um, you are occupying it. You are trying to jack parts of that country. And, uh, you know, the death toll is through the roof. Tens of thousands, probably over 100,000 now. And uh, this is a way to deflect. What do you say? Squirrel, look over here. And, uh, I mean, I don't know. I don't, I'm not familiar with the polling in Russia as to whether or not this is popular, but my reaction effectively is, I don't care. Even if it is popular, I wouldn't be like, oh, well, then it's okay to pass it because this is a rights question. So there's multiple different kinds of issues, right? And, and one of them is constitutionally protected rights, so human rights. Human rights stuff should not be open to, to a vote, Right. That's like saying, let's go back to 1952 in Mississippi and vote on whether or not they think segregation should be legal or illegal. I don't care if it came back 85 percent. Let's keep segregation going. I'd say. As a matter of, of as a right, black people uh, don't have to be second class citizens. They are equal under the law. So I don't care if it's 99 percent that say, yeah, let's enforce second class citizenship on them. Fuck that. No. They, they should be legal under the law. And this is the same thing here when it comes to LGBTQ issues, any sort of characteristics and characteristic that's immutable that you can't change. There should be no discrimination on that basis. And what he's doing is the worst of the worst. So you see kind of a like clear hierarchy too in advancement on these issues. Like there are some countries that are, have sort of evolved massively on these social issues and then others that are you know, still draconian and primitive, and it could be for religious reasons. It could be for other reasons, but this is totally unacceptable. And now look, it is, I'm sure it was already kind of dangerous to be LGBTQ in Russia. Now it's even more dangerous. Now it's even more dangerous because any sort of outward display. So what, if somebody's like kind of just flamboyant by their nature or they're a guy and they wear bright colors or, or the way they talk, is that enough to say, oh, you're sort of promoting homosexuality? Uh, maybe. It might be accusations that somebody's gay could land him in a in a prison cell. Right. And now we have a situation where any sort of like it criminalizes even debate on the issue, which how is society supposed to move forward if you can't even talk about it? If you can't even take the correct position, which is that gay people are equal and deserve the same protections. If you can't even debate that or discuss that, how do you move public opinion forward? You're just stuck in a permanent uh, state of stasis and you're paralyzed and you're not going anywhere. And it's just a regressive laws in perpetuity. 
that's totally unacceptable. So, um, really, really terrible stuff here. And uh, my heart goes out to everybody who's LGBTQ in, um, in Russia. So there is a really, really crazy story currently unfolding in Peru. Let me walk everybody through it. Um, so Peru elected um, a heterodox leftist president by the name of, of Pedro Castillo. Now, I, I say he's heterodox because, and we'll dive into this a little more in a little bit, but he's very left-wing on economic issues and pretty stridently right-wing on, on social issues, okay? So this guy was elected, um, and he narrowly defeated Fujimori, who, by the way, is the daughter of the former dictator of Peru, who also had the last name Fujimori. So Castillo's slogan was, no more poor people in a rich country. Um, he's a rural teacher and a farmer and, and a union leader. Um, Fujimori, of course, his, his opponent that he beat uh, is an ardent capitalist. Uh, her father is currently serving 25 years in prison for corruption and for killings. Under the previous dictator Fujimori, they sterilized 270,000 native women and 22,000 men. So there was a war on indigenous men and women and they sterilized them. Um, so Castillo basically ran on vowing to nationalize Peru's resources. And they have vast resources there. He says, no more you know, uh, rapacious companies coming in here. We're going to nationalize the resources and give the proceeds to the people. Um, now, Peru is in an interesting situation because the way their government is structured and the way their laws are, um, there's been six different presidents in six years. So ever since the fall of the previous dictatorship, they've just been like bouncing back and forth. Um, again, six presidents in six years is astonishing. I'm not, I, I don't know if I've ever heard of a country that has, you know, this fast of a turnover. Um, so Castillo was only president for 17 months. As soon as he got into office, they already uh, tried to impeach him. It was only a few months in that they tried to impeach him the first time. They've tried three times to impeach him. Again, 17 months is how long he's been in office. So the first time was uh, about five months into his presidency. And they argued, uh, we're impeaching him for illicit financing of the party. That's what they claimed. Um, now, they needed two thirds of their Congress in order to get this through. And it failed big time. So there's 130 lawmakers in their Congress. They only got 46 to vote for that first impeachment. Okay. Then they tried to impeach him after that for, quote, moral incapacity, permanent moral incapacity. Now, you might say, well, Kyle, that sounds really vague. Like, what's the objective criteria here? And my response is, there is none. This is the vaguest shit of all time, permanent moral incapacity. So basically, Congress, for any reason or non-reason whatsoever, can effectively try to axe the president. Um, they only got 55 votes the second time. Now, I should also mention, they've used this permanent moral incapacity thing to go after presidents um, six times since 2017. So this is the Congress's go-to move to oust a president for any reason or non-reason whatsoever, okay? Um, so then, on the eve of the third impeachment vote, um, he comes out and gives a speech and says, Congress has had it out for me since I got into office. They always have had it out with me, uh, had it out for me. They always will have it out for me. They never gave me a chance. They're basically doing what's called lawfare. So instead, like, warfare is self-explanatory, it's violent, you know, you, you go after people with guns and 
and physically try to, you know, do a coup or overthrow them. This is lawfare. This is like, let's use laws on the books uh, to our advantage and make, even if the law is super fucking vague and, and there might not be any specifics there, it's like, good enough, let's go after our opponents that way. Um, so on the eve of the third impeachment, uh, he, or excuse me, so he gave the a speech the night before and then on the day of, right before the uh, the vote, he comes out and gives another speech and says, um, I'm, I'm dissolving Congress. So Castillo went on state television and announced the dissolution of Congress. And he said elections would be held to choose new lawmakers, new Congress people. And he said a new constitution would be written. So that's when, you know, all the headlines uh, hit all the mainstream media outlets in the U.S. And that, you know, people go, oh, my God, this guy's like effectively uh, trying to do a coup. He was arrested for rebellion after that. And then ironically, after he dissolved Congress, that was the thing that uh, made it so Congress did impeach him. So they had 101 votes and six against impeaching him and 10 abstentions, 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 I should say. Apparently, I don't know how to speak today. Um, So now he's basically, he's done. He's done. And now the VP is is leading the country. And um, of course, the speculation is, Maybe he knew he knew that they already had the votes to impeach him. And so that's why he went out there and said, I'm dissolving Congress, because from his perspective, he goes, these people have had it out for me since day one. They never gave me a chance to uh, to legislate. By the way, he, he was from like an outsider party. And so when he got in there, he had a hard time like staffing around him. And um, when it was clear that Congress had it out for him and they were trying to, you know, punt him uh, to the curb he started uh, making concessions and like, okay, you want me to put like this centrist uh, judge in this position and, you know, this right-leaning person in my cabinet, I'll, I'll do that, I'll do that. He's basically trying to appease them. Um, and they still, when all was said and done, they ended up kicking him out of office. So the complaint is that uh, he had, you know, permanent moral character incapacitation or whatever, just totally vague bullshit. They also claim that he's the head of a criminal organization involving his family and his allies that hand out public contracts in exchange for money. Um, but look, there's there's really no evidence of that. And here's one of the problems with Peru. It's not it's not a judicial standard that you have to reach. It's just a political standard. So impeachment is it's like this willy nilly thing that they throw around. And so for him to dissolve Congress was definitely, uh, you know, a really strong move, right? It was uh, certainly crossed the line. Uh, But the thing he argues is they've been trying to coup me since I got in office or else just a few months in and they're trying to get rid of me. I mean, he literally wasn't able to do anything while in office, nothing. Um, So let me tell you a little more. This is from the AFP article. In October, Castillo requested mediation by the Organization of American States, that's the OAS, saying that the attempts to remove him were, quote, a coup in progress. The body visited the country in November and called for a 100-day political truce, which fell on deaf ears. So in other words, the OAS got involved, and they basically said, like, Castillo's kind of right. You guys are sort of, you are effectively doing lawfare and trying to coup him, so let's just have a truce for 100 days. Stop trying to, like, kick this guy out of office. And they just, they didn't listen. Impeachment proceedings are uh, really common in Peru, as we discussed, because, quote, its constitution allows for one to be brought against 
for one to be brought against a president based on the more subjective premise of political rather than legal wrongdoing. It has created much political instability. In November 2020, Peru had three presidents in one week. The OAS Human Rights Commission last year raised concerns about the, quote, moral incapacity constitutional provision, saying it had been distorted due to a lack of objective definition. So in other words, even the OAS is like, hey, man, this is kind of insane how loose you play with kicking presidents out of office. You know, this permanent moral incapacitation or whatever is completely subjective. It's completely made up. There's no burden of proof or judicial standard in question here. It's just subjective whim. And so that's what led to the axing of this guy. So look, what's my overall breakdown? Uh, let's go, let's go in order here. So what the Congress did to him every step of the way, honestly, is insane. And it's fucked up. And I do think it's fair to call it lawfare and a coup attempt because he didn't have the opportunity to do anything. He had trouble staffing his administration. Um, they blocked him literally every single step of the way. They trying to impeach him five months in when he hadn't hadn't even fucking done anything yet and was trying to, but was getting blocked at every turn. Um, I don't think that's legitimate. It's not legitimate. You know, you have to, the person is democratically elected. He has to have a chance to rule on behalf of the people. And they just blocked that from day one. So I do think it's fair to say they were trying to do a coup against him from the beginning. And this is lawfare that they were engaging in. Um, they tried to coup him, or they tried to impeach him, which is effectively cooing him, three separate times. And this last time that it, it worked is because he dissolved Congress. Because basically, I think he snapped. He got fed up. And he's like, well, fuck this. What you guys are doing isn't legal. It's not fair. It's not just. This isn't like, you know, this isn't uh, some official thing that you're doing, which is legitimate. And so he snapped and he, and he got rid of him. What I would say is, what he should have done, and it's easy for me to say this Monday morning quarterbacking from a studio, but I think what he should have done is instead of saying, I'm dissolving Congress, I think he should have said, um, uh, I'm doing an executive order declaring that from now on, the impeachment standard is judicial and it needs, uh, you know, there's a burden of proof, there's evidence, and uh, it's no longer just subjective political whim. So we're going to raise the standard for impeachment. And of course, by this actual standard, you guys don't have anything on me to impeach me. So that's a way to still have Congress exist um, and, and not dissolve it, which certainly sounds like a very dictatorial thing to do. Sounds like he's doing a coup, right? Um, you can have Congress exist while still being in power. Because again, he was democratically elected and there is no reasonable standard by which you can, you can kick him out of the government at this point when he hasn't even fucking done anything, right? So... If you want to bring a legitimate impeachment, okay, bring evidence and let's have a judicial process lined up, not some bullshit, subjective, you know, nonsense thing that they've been doing. So uh, that's my breakdown. I think they were effectively trying to coup him all along. They were trying to kick him out all along, even though he was democratically elected. And um, ultimately he snapped and then he ended up saying, oh, you're cooing me, bitch, I'm cooing you. I'm going to ax you. Um, and so really what I think should have happened is he changes the standard of impeachment to make it a more reasonable standard of impeachment. But make no mistake about it, this guy, and this is why it's it's sort of super unfair, and again, they've had six presidents in six years, this guy is like a rural peasant dude, a union worker, um, and he was going to look out for the poor. He was going to nationalize their uh, vast uh, resources. And that's something that the neoliberal establishment there did not want. The suits did not want that. And so 
it's yet another cautionary tale. It's almost like, and this is what I said to Crystal after I read all the articles about this. It's like they're shopping for a new dictator. And the, the person who will actually be allowed to govern and legislate once they're in office is going to be somebody who the big money interests are okay with and who they support. And so in other words, you're not going to get somebody who's going to be transformative for the poor people and the working people in Peru. And so it's, it's a, a really, really wild story. And it, you know, it's a cautionary tale about, again, what we call lawfare. So you do, you're doing a coup, but you're making it look like official and procedural. And so then when he snaps and he basically coos you back and says, fuck you guys, you've been holding me down too long and you're not following the rules. Then they get to, they get to play the game where it's like, you know, they punched him and then he turns around and punches them back. And they're like, oh, and then you have all the headlines in the U.S. comparing him to like this, like he's Donald Trump and this is January 6th. That's truly not a fair comparison. It's not. When you're stymied every single step of the way, and again, I don't support what he did dissolving Congress. I think there was a third path you could have taken, which is to raise the bar for the impeachment standard. But I, I certainly understand uh, where he's coming from in that the fix was in from the beginning. And it's like, you know, a rural union guy, they weren't going to let him do anything for anybody. And so this was his reaction to that. But anyway, there you have it. They shouldn't have tried to coup him. They shouldn't have done the lawfare. They shouldn't have used these bogus impeachment standards. He shouldn't have dissolved Congress, but um, he should have raised the standard for impeachment and then tried to govern somehow while in power. And by the way, he ran on drafting a new constitution. I think he, there should have been some process by which he could do that, right? And he ran on nationalizing the resources, but there's no way they were going to let him do that. There was no way they were going to let him do that. And basically the powerful interests at the end uh, won out. And so the VP is in charge. I don't know how long she, she'll last because I don't know what her politics are, but certainly if somebody else comes about that's for real change, I think they'll be axed as well. And But you got to keep a keen eye out because again, the specifics matter, right? And I feel like people who just read the headlines on this got totally misled. That You needed to read the specifics to know what was going on. And so this whole like, lawfare thing is real. Sometimes the people who look like they're following the rules and being serious are the ones who are initiating a coup attempt. And so you should reserve judgment until you read all the facts. And I recommend you do that about any story like this. All right, guys. So we got part two of the Twitter files. Um, you know, part one was Matt Taibbi uh, released it the other day in conjunction with uh, Elon Musk. And um, you guys know the gist of that. We did a big, uh, long segment on it. But um, effectively, you had the Trump White House was talking to Twitter to try to get things pulled. That's something they reported. Now, they didn't give any specifics on the Trump White House. I wish they did, right? But they didn't. But they said the Trump White House had a direct line to Twitter and they were getting stuff pulled if they didn't like it. Um, and then you had the Biden team had a direct line to Twitter. Now, the specific things they asked to get pulled down, this was the Biden campaign, it was before he was president, was basically Hunter Biden revenge porn. There were like dick pics of Hunter floating around and Hunter doing drugs floating around and they wanted that stuff pulled, okay? Which I think is fair game because revenge porn is illegal in many states as it should be. Uh, and then we learned that uh, it actually wasn't Democratic officials pressuring Twitter to pull down the Hunter Biden laptop story. They did that on their own. It was uh, Vijaya Gotti who did that. And so that's basically what we learned from the, the first round of the Twitter files. Now we have the second round and I'll just give you guys the gist of it. Um, Twitter has secret blacklists. That's the gist of it. 
Um, so here's this is from Barry Weiss, who's working with Elon Musk on this. A new Twitter files investigation reveals that teams of Twitter employees build blacklists, prevent disfavored tweets from trending and actively limit the visibility of entire accounts or even trending topics all in secret without informing users. Twitter once had a mission to, quote, to give everyone the power to create and share ideas and information instantly without barriers. Along the way, barriers were nevertheless erected. So she goes on to uh, give specific examples of this. So there's a Stanford doctor by the name of Jay Bhattachara, Bhattachara, uh, and this person is um, was against COVID lockdowns. They were arguing this at a time when that was the less popular position in the establishment. Um, and so apparently he was somebody who had his tweets prevented from trending, even if they would, you know, organically trend. Um, and so they have all this information behind the scenes, Twitter does, about the certain restrictions on certain accounts. So another example is the Fox News guy, Dan Bongino. Um, he had some, uh, some, some rules that were implemented against him. He was on a search blacklist. He was, um, he was on a not safe for work view. I don't know exactly what that one means, but search blacklist is when, when you search for him, he doesn't come up immediately. You have to like really dig to find him. So he was part of that. Um, and then we have a Charlie Kirk. He, um, do not amplify is what Charlie Kirk was under. There was a do not amplify thing, which I don't know exactly what that means, but that might be like, he's not, uh, he's not allowed to trend when he, uh, when he has a, a tweet that blows up or, you know, they have, they have ways of like hiding certain people, shadow banning certain people, like putting people in this weird limbo middle ground place where you can't grow as an account. And this is the gist of it here. Now, um, I will go on to say yet again, I, I do find it kind of annoying that, so they do this whole thing. And then the only examples that they give are people on the right. When we know as a matter of fact that there are, just as many people on the left, if not more, who are also shadow banned, blacklisted, destroyed by the algorithm, etc. Um, and so, I look, it's good to know this information that like, hey, shadow banning is real. Um, but, and it's good to know the specifics of it, but the lack of like, giving all the facts, giving all the information, like again, in the Taibi thread, he says, oh, the Tr Trump White House, when he was in power as president, they were getting stuff pulled down from Twitter and he, they just gloss over that. And it's like, no, give me more on that too, right? Like, I'm not saying protect the left or protect uh, Democrats or whatever, but I'm saying if you're going to report critically on them and what went on with them, great, do it. But also give me the specifics on, you know, the left-wing accounts that were shadow banned. Now, to Elon's credit, uh, he actually is saying there's going to be like all the information, you're going to know the the status of your account. He's releasing some sort of a tool which is going to allow you to know the status of your account if you're shadow banned, you know, what things sort of apply to you. And there's going to be a way to apply to get out of that, which is all good. I, I like all that. I think this actually is a rare good decision from Elon Musk. But also, look, I, I can't get through the segment without stating the other obvious point, which is, so they're saying like, oh my God, this is a bombshell. And I agree. I think it is a bombshell. I don't think, you know, this shadow banning stuff should be real. I think that you should have a more open system or whatever happens, happens. And if it goes in a bad direction, so be it. But um, Elon himself, this is a guy, he himself advocated for shadow banning like a few weeks ago. So how much is this going to change? 
I don't think it's going to change that much. Remember that tweet where he said, I'm in favor of freedom of speech, but not freedom of reach. And so if it's not a positive tweet, it's going to be basically like pushed down in the algorithm. So, I, I mean, you can't do the whole like, oh, bombshell, Twitter shadow banning. And then the next guy's like, yeah, bombshell, Twitter, Twitter shadow banning. And I'm going to go ahead and continue that. No, don't, you shouldn't do it either. <laughs> they shouldn't have done it originally, and you shouldn't do it either. Now, again, it, this is a complex issue because there are upsides and downsides of both approaches. So one of the downsides of, of doing this, of, um, of having it free and open for real, is that there are going to be times when really unsavory things are going to trend. Like, really, really bad things. And, okay, what are you going to do? You know, it is what it is. I mean, I sort of file it under that category. Um, but there is a trade-off here, right? Maximum freedom sometimes means the biggest charlatans get a really loud megaphone and get the biggest reach. Sometimes that's what happens. Sometimes it means genuinely hateful stuff can spread. Sometimes that's what happens. Look at, like, all the outlets that ran on or, or that uh, were created with we're all about free speech and they really stuck to it. Some of them are just flat out Nazi central right now, you know? And there's a there's an issue here because this butts heads with advertiser dollars. No advertiser is going to want to give money to a platform that's like, you know, hey, you could literally say anything that's illegal. Now, we could blame the advertisers for that. And I think that's fair. But also, that means there's just pressure that Twitter management, including Elon, are, fa are feeling that's like, I could be principled and just blow up the business, or I could do a little bit of moderation here and there and maybe be able to keep the lights on because the advertisers will keep giving us money. So these aren't easy decisions, and this is like a real complex situation, but the original promise of social media was that it's sort of like, it's sort of like a utility. Like if, if you, like a phone company, for example, if you have a mafia person calls a hitman to go kill somebody, does anybody blame Verizon if they were using like a Verizon phone? Does anybody say, Verizon, you must do something about this? Nobody says that, right? Because they're like, it's just a service that's available for everybody. And there is no, like, they don't get involved. They don't hear the specifics. They don't get involved in it at all. It's just a medium. And, uh, but with social media, at some point along the way, that flipped. And people started saying like, Twitter must do something or Facebook must do something to address this. And I don't agree with that mindset at all. But that is where we are now. And so that's why you have a situation where they're doing the bombshell, bombshell, shadow banning happening. And then in the next breath, Elon's like, and I'm going to continue it. Okay, so if that's the case, then you're leaking all the Twitter files from the previous ownership of Twitter. Are you going to leak your own files about what the conversations you guys are having right now? Because you should, if you believe in that maximum transparency for them and for the company currently. But you probably don't. You want to give yourself the secrecy and you want to, you know, expose the stuff the previous people did. But anyway, there you have it. Shadow banning is real. Um, it'll be interesting to see who from the left is on these lists because I can name a bunch off the top of my head, probably including me. I'm, I'm sure I have some sort of a strike against my channel and, and or against my uh, um, my Twitter in, in some way, right? I'm not sure the extent of it. I'm not sure how many strikes against it there are, but I know a lot of people who probably fall into this category. And it's just a shame they weren't highlighted because they deserve to be. So Kirsten Cinema officially announced this morning she is going, going gonzo. She is leaving the Democratic Party. She's registering as an independent. Um, now, does that change anything in the Senate? Well, not really, because the Democrats still have uh, an advantage. Even if Kirsten Cinema went fully with the Republicans, the Democrats would still uh, have the Senate. OK, now she's not doing that. She's not registering as a Republican. She's registering as an independent. And my understanding is she will still kind of caucus more with the Democrats. Um, but she is, uh, 
effectively leaving the party and uh, trying to craft a, you know, I'm the maverick brand for herself, following in the footsteps of John McCain, in a sense, with that branding. Um, so in Axios, they say, uh, Senator Kirsten Sinema of Arizona said in remarks published at 6 a.m. on Friday that she's leaving the Democratic Party and registering as an independent. Um, Sinema views activists in the Arizona Democratic Party as extreme as the state Republican Party. She's up in 2024 and risked a primary from Representative Ruben uh, Gallego. And um, all the polls right now show that this guy would have draxed her, would just obliterate her. She's deeply, deeply unpopular. Basically, all rank and file Democrats hate her. Um, so this guy, Ruben, probably would have won that, which leads to, look, why do I think she's doing it? That's actually the reason why she's doing it. She would rather become an independent and then resign and not run again, or become an independent and then skip a primary and run as an independent in the general. And so she's doing one of those two things. Either she's going to resign and become a lobbyist, or she's going to not partake in the Democratic primary and then run as an independent in the general, which uh, I don't think she's going to do well even there. So she says, uh, Arizonans, including many registered as Democrats or Republicans, are eager for leaders who focus on common sense solutions rather than party doctrine. Cinema says in an op-ed in the Arizona Republic, her state's largest paper, that's why I have joined the growing numbers of Arizonans who reject party politics by declaring my independence from the broken partisan system in Washington. Ever unpredictable and inscrutable, uh, oh, I'm sorry, that's actually not a quote from her. Cinema, ever unpredictable and inscrutable, told Senate Majority Leader Schumer of her decision yesterday. She's expected to maintain her committees through Democrats. So again, that means she's caucusing more with Democrats. Quote, removing myself from the partisan structure, not only is it true to who I am and how I operate, I also think it'll provide a place of belonging for many folks across the state and the country who are also tired of the partisanship. Mm. I'm so independent-minded, and I'm so special, and I'm so unique. Aren't I amazing? Look at me, a free thinker! I'm free. All right, so now let me tell you the reality of this. I checked the number earlier today. 538 tracked the way everybody voted in Congress in the age of Trump. And what they found is with Kirsten Cinema, 50% of the time, she voted with Trump. 50%. So she literally votes half the time with Republicans and half the time with Democrats. So... The idea that, oh, this is some high-minded intellectual project. No, let me tell you what it really is. She is one of the most corrupt Democrats. So all those votes, and you can go look at them, all those votes that are, you know, with the right, those are votes that are more about economics, more about serving corporations. That's what it's about. So the reason why she does that is because she's taken a tremendous amount of money from these companies from these lobbyists. It happened in the middle of the, the debate over lowering prescription drug prices. Kirsten Cinema was against that for the longest time. And she got, a, a, I think it was a million dollars from Big Pharma. And then, wow, she was one of the main uh, roadblocks in getting it through. Even Manchin had wanted to go further than she did. And it was because of her, we got a shitty compromise that was like, we're going to lower prescription drug prices, but only some of them and only for seniors. That's all because of Kirsten Cinema. If she didn't take that big pharma money, we could have had lower prescription drug prices for the entire country. So that's who Kirsten Cinema is. She represents the big banks, the military industrial complex, Wall Street, big pharma. She is one of the most corrupt Democrats. And so now 
She's like, I'm done doing this tap dance and I'm despised in this party. So now I'm going to act like I'm some sort of intellectual hero and free thinker and go, I'm an independent because I'm above the fray. No, you're an independent because you take a shitload of money from corrupt special interests and do their bidding while still being left-leaning on social issues. So you're a full sellout on economic issues and left-leaning on social issues. You're not some sort of hero. And this, remember, Kirsten Sinema is the one that everybody in the media made a big deal about. She's bisexual. She's a bisexual woman. Isn't that amazing? Isn't she such a hero? No, I don't care about her identity. I care about her votes. I care about who she's looking out for. And she's certainly not looking out for regular Arizonans. And she did an interview with Jake Tapper, by the way. Jack, Jake Tapper was asking her, like, does this impact, like, you know, what's going on in D.C.? Like, does this, who you caucus with, where your votes are? And her reaction was, that seems like a very inside-the-swamp D.C. type question, Jake. <laughs> no, that is literally the most substantive question you could ask. Hey, are, how are you going to vote is effectively the question. And she's like, what an inside-the-beltway question. No, that is the most substantive question. So anyway, good fucking riddance. If she runs again, um, it is very possible. I don't know who she'll take more from, the Democrat or the Republican. But she could serve as a spoiler effect to make it so a Democrat doesn't win in Arizona. That would be bad. That would be very, very bad. Um, she's got to fucking go. But she wanted to suck herself off a little bit and let everybody know how special she is and to tell her, I'm above the fray. I'm above politics. Just so everybody knows, you don't get to declare that, right? You don't get to just say, I'm more intelligent and special than you and independent-minded than you. You don't get to just, like, assert that you're above politics. We look at your votes. We can determine exactly what's going on with you. You're not special. You're not interesting. You're not unique. You're just the most corrupt Democrat. That's what you are, Kirsten. All right, so um, we had a vote in the House on the Respect for Marriage Act, which, of course, was the uh, compromise bill on gay marriage. So again, just to give the backstory, the cliff notes of it, um, Clarence Thomas in the decision overturning Roe versus Wade turned around and said, we should also look at uh, Obergefell next, which is fancy justice way of saying we should throw out gay marriage. That's what he was saying. And so that led to Congress to go, holy shit, this is fucking crazy. We need to do something about this. So what Congress can do is they can pass a law protecting gay marriage so that even if the Supreme Court overturns it and says you don't have a right to it, it would still be the law of the land if Congress passes a law saying we allow gay marriage. So that's, that's what the goal was. Now, the House passed a bill that legalized gay marriage and kept the status quo as it is. Okay, that's wonderful. That died in the Senate. They were like, no, 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 we're not going to do this. We need, we need a compromise. We need to find a way to protect religious liberty. So, you know, they, they found the middle ground. The middle ground effectively is, yeah, we're going to give you a right to gay marry, but if a certain church or whatever doesn't want to marry you, you got to go somewhere else. So in other words, people can still have religious liberty objections or whatever. Uh, the bill also protects interracial marriage. So that ended up passing the Senate and now it went to the House. In the House, thankfully, it passed. But there were over 100 Republicans who voted no on it. So not only are they not for gay marriage being a right, they're not even for like a compromise bill where gay people could still get married and like you can be a bigot on your own if you want to be and reject a gay couple from getting married at your church, right? So here we have Representative Hartzler, Republican Representative Hartzler, and here was her speech on this issue. Watch. I'll tell you my priority. Protect religious liberty, protect people of faith, and protect Americans who believe in the true meaning of marriage. 
I hope and pray that my colleagues will find the courage to join me in opposing this misguided and this dangerous bill. I yield back. <laughs> I hate equal rights. <laughs> Why do we have to treat people fairly? <laughs> my mommy and daddy were really religious and hated gay people, and I hate them too, and now I'm not getting my way. <laughs> Even though my haircut looks like I'm a lesbian. <laughs> By the way, for realsies, if I, I'm just saying, if I saw this woman walking down the street, I'd be like, I, I, I know, I know what her thing is. I know what she, I know what she does. I know what she looks like. I'm just saying, no judgment, because I'm for equal rights, unlike her, right? But that's what it looks like. It's like all those anti-gay politicians and religious leaders who then get caught Sucking a dick in a New Jersey turnpike bathroom. How many times have we seen this? Ted Haggard, the super religious conservative guy, you know, big big time anti-gay dude. And he gets caught doing crystal meth off of a gay hooker's ass. What do you know? Silent sinners scream the loudest. It's usually, it stems from repression, right? So usually these people have these feelings and they're taught it's wrong. And so they repress and repress and repress. And that manifests in like, outright hatred of the gay community, right? They've done studies on this, by the way. The people who express anti-gay sentiment, they uh, did a study where they hooked electrodes up to the special place and they played porn. And the ones who expressed anti-gay sentiment and vitriol, they were the ones who got hard watching gay porn. So there's a real, there is a real like self-hater thing going on. Now, I don't know for sure about this woman, uh, but I could speculate <laughs> and y'all know what my speculation is. But look at the, this is so pathetic to me because like I understand there's some people who just haven't been, you know, haven't seen the arguments, haven't thought about the issue thoroughly and they just default go to what they've always known. Like, oh, I thought marriage between a man and a woman. And so I understand there's some people in the country who are just going to be a little more backwards on this stuff, a little, a little uh, you know, primitive on this stuff. They'll have some regressive ideas. I understand that. But I don't understand the, like, the, uh, like a real passionate like why are you crying why are you crying about this what is there to cry about even if you disagree with it isn't it like well okay what it is what it is what we're talking about here guys just so you understand it's not just about the label like oh we're we get to be married and we're gay no it's also about legal rights tax rights if somebody's dying in the hospital you want to be able to fucking visit them right well, in some circumstances, you're not married and you don't get those same sort of visitation rights. You don't get the same sort of inheritance rights. You don't get the same tax benefits, social security benefits if your loved one, you know, has an issue, right? And they just, they're just like, fuck them, fuck them. We, you know, they're gay. They don't count. They're not equal. We got no interest in it whatsoever. And it's just, it's super pathetic, man. Now, of all the things, of all the things you can cry about on the floor of Congress, right? Have we ever seen Somebody cry over the fact that uh, 45,000 Americans die every year because they don't have basic health care. 45,000. You know how many that is in uh, all the other developed countries in the world? Goose egg, bitch. Nothing. Nobody cries over that. Nobody cries over the half a million homeless people. Nobody cries over that. Nobody cries for the working poor who work full-time jobs and don't make enough money to pay the bills. Nobody cries for them. 
Nobody cries for the, you know, the uh, people who've died fighting uh, unnecessary wars, wars of aggression. But we get, <laughs> you're going to treat people equally. <laughs> I don't like that. <laughs> Jesus Christ, man. So she's from Missouri's uh, 4th District. And I, this is just a reminder that, like, these people exist, man. They exist. You guys, and myself included, sometimes we take a lot of things for granted. Some very basic things, right? Like, yeah, people roughly, you know, want to treat other people fairly and equally and, you know, respect people's rights. And many don't. Many don't. And they went mask off, by the way, because that first bill that went through the House that legalized gay marriage... 157 Republicans voted against it. This is just recently. This is within the past six months. 157. And everybody probably thought, come like 2017, 2018, people were probably thinking, yeah, you know, we got gay marriage in 2015. It's a, it's, the issue's done. It's over. I mean, 71% of the country supports it, but that's still 29% that doesn't. 29% ain't nothing to scoff at. So anyway, this is, anyway, this is where we are right now in the country. Uh, it's just, it's so sad. It's so sad. Get your religion out of our lives. Um, get your authoritarian beliefs out of our lives. I Just don't control other people. That's it. That's it. People should be able to do whatever they want to do as long as they're not hurting anybody else. You know, uh, you want to do some drugs? Hey, man, that's your business. If you, if you need rehab, you need help, we should help you, right? But if not, if it's just a choice, if it's freedom, go right ahead, do it. These people are anti-freedom and they're pro-theocracy. Because I guarantee you, she's got this wrapped up in a whole religious line of justification. We don't care about your religion. Get it the fuck away from us. You can do your own thing for you. That's your religion. You can practice it for yourself. But there's over 4,000 religions that exist in the world. Why should we enforce yours on other people in the same way? Why, If somebody was Hindu and was like, we're going to enforce Hindu law in America. People be like, what the fuck are you talking about? Fuck out of here. What if I'm not Hindu? But that's what these these guys do, the evangelical fundamentalists. Fuck out of here. Fuck out of here. And if you're going to be so anti-gay, at least get a different haircut. All right, now that we finished the Kyle Klinsky portion of uh, the show, time to get to the Crystal Kyle and Friends show. Guys, this is such a great interview. Um, I, this guy's amazing. He's written a trillion books. He's been uh, the left-wing radio host holding it down forever since I was a a child. He's the real OG. I have nothing but high praise for him. Here is the one and only Tom Hartman. Welcome, Tom Hartman. It's a real pleasure to talk to you. Hey, good morning, Kyle. It's great to see you. So uh, there's a lot I want to uh, there's a lot I want to uh, ask you about because um, I've been following your work for a very long time. Um, uh, truth be told, you're actually one of the reasons why I do what I do. Uh, so huge inspiration. Um, and I've learned so much from you. So I want to uh, take some of this knowledge that I've learned from you over the years and sort of uh, package it together and, and you know, expose it uh, to a new audience. So I wanted to start with the issue of money and politics. One of the things that I learned from you, and I'm going to let you, uh, you know, expound on this, is that um, obviously in the 1970s, there were a number of Supreme Court cases that effectively legalized money and politics. And that's when you had the flood of corporate money and billionaire money. And, you know, they've effectively rigged the process against working people. Um, tell everybody about uh, the earlier cases on that and how perhaps the, the precedent that the court expounded on was a total misreading 
you're talking about uh, a corporate personhood in Santa Clara County versus Southern Pacific Railroad in 1886? Correct. Yeah. Yeah, this is an amazing case. Um, the, the court itself has, has quoted itself uh, saying that, uh, yeah, b- back in 1886, we decided that corporations are persons. And, you know, this is a, a, a very consequential decision. Um, first of all, just to back up a little bit and define terms, corporate personhood, um, the, the idea of personhood actually has sort of a legitimate basis. And that is that, um, you know, you and I are obviously persons and therefore we can enter into contracts and we have to pay taxes and the government can, you know, uh, give us a social security number and, you know, so that we can pay taxes and participate, uh, we can sign contracts, stuff like that. Um, corporations needed that kind of a status in order to engage in business and, and pay taxes and things and get what's called an employer ID number. And although this is this long predates the IRS. Um, and so, you know, from the beginning of, uh, you know, of, of America, corporations were acknowledged to be persons, but they were always called corporate persons or artificial persons as to distinguish them from human persons. So as human persons, we have access to the to the rights under the Bill of Rights, for example. We have the First Amendment right of, uh, you know, to, to, to free speech, to say whatever we want without the government interfering in it. Uh, we have the Fourth Amendment right to privacy, so the government can't snoop through our papers in our home. We have the Fifth Amendment right not to incriminate ourselves. We have the Fourteenth Amendment right to equal protection under the law, um, you know, things like that. And um, in 1886, there was a there were a series of tax cases. The railroads were really trying to get a hold of those human rights. They wanted to be able to, to uh, you know, assert their political power in ways that they hadn't uh, been able to prior to this. And so there were a series of tax cases that came out of California. And back in those days, the, the Supreme Court justices spent two months a year in Washington, D.C., and 10 months of the year in their circuit, wherever their circuit was. And Stephen J. Fields was the guy who was the represented the Ninth Circuit in California, or what was California in that area, still is, um, on the Supreme Court. So he was both on the Supreme Court and he was the head of the Ninth Circuit. And, and he was being bribed by the head of several of the railroads, specifically in this case, the, the Santa Clara, uh, uh, excuse me, the Southern Pacific Railroad. And uh, the bribe was, and, and I don't think anybody knew this historically until we dug this up uh, back in 2003, I think, when I was writing Unequal Protection, or maybe 2001. Um, I wrote a book about it. Uh, we found the documentation in, actually, it wasn't in the field library. It was in the Morrison Remick Waite Library. Morrison Remick Waite was the chief justice of the Supreme Court at the time uh, at, in the National Archives. And we found the correspondence where the railroads were saying, you know, if you will give us corporate personhood, we will support you for president of the United States in the election of uh, uh, 1888 or 1892 or whichever one it was, I forget. And uh, so Field kicked five of these cases to the Supreme Court. They're referred to as the California tax cases of the 1880s. And then when he sat on the Supreme Court in every single one of these cases, he tried to say, oh, corporations should be persons. And the one that uh, that kind of won uh, specifically was called Santa Clara County versus Southern Pacific Railroad. And the, the, the thing in, in the debate was the railroad was saying, because Santa Ana County charges us 
a few pennies less per mile for property tax on our railroad lines that go through the county than does Santa Clara County. Uh, Santa Clara County is not, uh, we, we, are, we have lost access to equal protection under the law under the 14th Amendment. And we should have that access because we are a corporate person. Now, the, what the court actually ruled was, screw that, you have to pay your taxes in Santa Clara County, no matter what they are. And they just rejected that, uh, that idea altogether, that corporations were persons in this 1886 case. And Stephen J. Field lost, essentially. In fact, he wrote a dissenting opinion, complaining about the fact that he had lost. But in the headnote of the, of the case, uh, a headnote is a, a kind of a brief summary of what's in the case. It has no legal status at all. It's written by the clerk of the court. In this case, the, the clerk of the court was a fellow by the name of John Chandler Bancroft Davis, whose father had been the governor of Massachusetts. He was a very wealthy uh, fellow. And he had been the president of a railroad, the Baltimore and Ohio, as I recall, the B&O Railroad, um, uh, before becoming chief or before becoming the clerk of the court. And during the debates in this case, the Chief Justice, Morrison Remick Wade, had, there had been this back and forth and back and forth between Sanderson, who was the lawyer for the railroads, and um, Delphin Delmas, who was the lawyer for Santa Clara County. He was also the guy who saved the Redwoods. He's, he's an amazing man. And, and he did that. And he argued this case for free for the county and about corporate personhood. And at some point, the Chief Justice jumps in and says, listen, we all acknowledge the corporations have personhood. And of course, what he was referring to was that artificial personhood. In other words, they have to pay the damn taxes. He said, that's not the case here. So let's move on. So Davis takes this little quote, we all acknowledge, or words to the effect of, we all acknowledge that corporations have personhood, puts it in the head note and just kind of buries it like a time bomb. Nobody paid any attention to this in 1886. By 1887, the next year, people were starting to notice it. Uh, this thing in the head note, uh, which prompted Grover Cleveland, who was the president of the United States at the time, in his 1887 address to the to Congress, his his annual State of the Union address, to say, and this is a quote from memory, so it's not quite exactly right, but it's damn close, to say, uh, corporations should be the carefully restrained masters, uh, excuse me, servants of the people, but they have become the the people's master. And now the average citizen has the corp the heel of the corporate boot upon his neck. I mean, this is literally at his State of the Union address. And uh, you know, within 10 years, the Supreme Court quoting the headnote, not the decision, which which the railroads lost, but quoting the headnote, which implied that the railroads had won, the Supreme Court started asserting that corporations have personhood rights. And so since then, uh the case that we started this conversation with, 1976, the the uh uh, Buckley versus Vallejo case, where this, which wasn't about corporate personhood, but it was about money being speech. In that case, they said when you when a wit a billionaire buys a politician, that's not uh, bribery any longer. It was bribery from the beginning of the republic right up until 1976. That's now free speech. Money is not money. Money is speech. And then two years later, in a case that was actually written by Lewis Powell, the famous Powell memo, he had been put on the court the year before in '72 by Richard Nixon. Um, or not the year before, but um, and in '78, um, uh, Lewis Powell authored a decision in a case called, called First National Bank versus Bellotti, where the First National Bank of Boston had been giving money to a political campaign that had nothing to do with banking, 
And they were sued by Frank Bellotti, the attorney general of Massachusetts, uh, for doing this. And they asserted, hey, as a person, we have the right, the, the free speech right, just like billionaires do, to buy politicians. And in this case in 78, Lewis, Lewis Powell said, yes, they do. And so ever since then, corporations have been able to legally bribe politicians. They've also asserted their Fifth Amendment right, excuse me, their Fourth Amendment right to privacy. Dow Chemical uh, got busted. One of uh, Somebody in a neighborhood near one of their factories noticed that they were illegally emitting benzene from a vent on the roof of the building into the air. It's a gas and it causes liver cancer. And so the EPA hired a plane and flew over the the roof of the building, flew over the top of the building and took uh, infrared pictures showing the the venting of the benzene and busted them. And Dow went to court, to the Supreme Court, and said, as a person, we have a Fourth Amendment right of privacy under the Bill of Rights and uh, won the case. And so now when the, you know, when the government comes to inspect meatpacking plants or chemical plants or anything else, they have to give notice first or they have to have a a search warrant, Um, whereas before they could just kind of bust in. Um, They've asserted their Fifth Amendment rights. There's been multiple cases uh, before the Supreme Court where corporations have refused to give documents to the government to, quote, testify against themselves, self-incrimination. The Supreme Court has said that's just fine. And they've asserted their 14th Amendment rights uh, probably hundreds of times uh, certainly several times before the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court has said, yes, you have the right to equal protection. If uh, you know if another company is getting this benefit, you get this benefit. If a human being gets this benefit, you can have this benefit. And so now we have a situation where corporations who can live forever, who can accumulate unlimited amounts of money, uh, who can operate in multiple states, who can have siblings and produce children infinitely they can they can produce as many sub corporations as they want donald trump has over 500 corporations uh in his trump organization uh corporations now uh, basically have far more power uh, certainly politically speaking than do humans sorry for the long so, answer no 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 kind of i people. love it told you how to build a watch, but i love i loved every word of it that history is fascinating so now explain for people because my understanding and again i learned this from you is that corporations couldn't always live forever. We used to have very strict, rigid laws that were enforced on corporations in a number of ways. So go ahead and expound on that. Yeah. Um, uh, the And again, this is in, in my book, uh, Unequal Protection, How Corporations Became Persons. Um, uh, if you, if you want to get all the actual details of it, because I'm, I'm I, you know, <laughs> I wrote that book over 20 years ago. And I, it, in any case, um, uh, how, the, so the question is how, how did corporations, oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, it, so it, they didn't, they used to have, how can they live forever? Yeah. For example, they used to have rules that like after 20 years or something in certain states that you yeah, have to like exactly. review it yeah. to see if this I, is I in the public I, interest. Right. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. I know where you're going now. Um, corporations are incorporated at the state level, uh, rather than at the federal level. So, you know, this has to do mostly with state laws. In fact, almost entirely exclusively with state laws. There are a couple of federal corporations. Amtrak, for example, is one, but they're weird hybrids. Um, so, uh, corporations always originate in the states. That's one of the reasons they're not even mentioned in the constitution. And, you know, in the early years of the Republic, in the early 1800s, when the modern corporate form was kind of evolving and coming to be, um, states began heavily regulating corporations. 
typically you could incorporate for a maximum of 20 years. There were some states that allowed 30 years and there was one or two states that allowed 40 years for the life of a corporation. And then at the end of that time, the corporation had to dissolve itself and then it could you could create a new corporation to buy the assets of the old one. So it could kind of reincarnate. But there, there was an opportunity for the state to evaluate whether the corporation was operating in the public good. And this was one of the other uh, provisions that was in virtually all of the incorporation laws in all the states, was that the corporation had to, to, had to operate to the public benefit. That is the whole reason why a state would allow a corporation to exist. <clears throat> Excuse me. And, and um, uh, you know, and the other thing was that every two years, and in some cases every year, but in most states it was every two years, the Secretary of State, one of his jobs, when, and back then it was always a his, um, was to evaluate whether the every, every corporation in the state was actually operating in the public benefit. And if they weren't, the corporations were just routinely dissolved. Uh, it was called the, the corporate death penalty, and and if and if a corporation misbehaved, they would get the death penalty. You know, thousands of corporations a year, right up until the 1890s, were just routinely dissolved by corporate by by states by individual states. So, in the 1890s, what happened was uh, John Rockefeller was running. He, he lived in Ohio, and he was running, and and Ohio was kind of the center of the oil belt in the United States in the 1890s. We don't think of it as that anymore. But this stretch, Michigan, Ohio, parts of Indiana, Pennsylvania, um, uh, West Virginia, this was oil country. There was a massive amount of oil there. This was the original Texas and Oklahoma. And, and uh, we don't you know, m- pump much from there anymore because we pumped it all out. But uh, Rockefeller was pumping oil like crazy, and he was uh, cutting deals with the railroads to refuse to carry the oil or charge a higher price for carrying the oil to his small competitors, all these wildcatters, these small independent oil producers. And uh, when they went bankrupt, which was why he was doing this, he would then buy out their assets or buy up their leases or simply buy their companies just before they went bankrupt and and incorporate them into Standard Oil of Ohio. And this was called uh, monopoly uh, or building a trust is what they referred to it back in the 1890s. And um, and and it was uh, actually it was more the 1880s. Now that I think of it, um, so in the 1890s he got nailed for this because in the 1880s there were multiple laws. Ohio passed a law first against this, and then the federal law, the the Sherman Antitrust Act, was passed in 1881. And so uh, Ohio, the the Secretary of State of Ohio. Uh, or the Attorney General of Ohio sued John Rockefeller and his company and said, what you're doing is an illegal business practice. So Rockefeller reached out to all the states in the country. He went public and, uh, you know, and said essentially to the New York Times, uh, if any state wants to change their corporate charter laws so that what I'm doing is legal, so that monopoly is legal, then I will move my operation to that state and I pay a hell of a lot of state taxes. And so this competition emerged. This mm. was this era uh, from around 1893 to around, or yeah, 1893 to around 1903, 1904. It's referred to as the charter mongering era when uh, the states got in a competition. The, you know, the first, the first to really lowball it was New Jersey. And in fact, that's where Rockefeller moved his operations, which is why more people remember Standard Oil in New Jersey than they do Standard Oil in Ohio. It was Standard Oil in New Jersey that then Teddy Roosevelt went after in the nineteen in the nineteen aughts. 
um, and, and William Howard Taft ultimately broke up in the 19-teens. But, um, the, but still the competition continued. And uh, New Jersey lowered their standards, did a, you said, okay, you can live forever. Uh, you can own as many corporations as you want. You can engage in, in monopolistic behavior. We recognize you as a person, going back to the Supreme Court decision from 20 years earlier. And, uh, but the state that ended up with the least restrictive laws was, was uh, Delaware. And that's and in Delaware, you can create a corporation for any person, any purpose. In fact, the the most corporations, most Delaware corporations, I own uh, one. Um, say your articles of incorporation say this corporation is incorporated to do anything that is legal in the state of Delaware, and um, that's why more than half of the companies traded on the New York Stock Exchange are Delaware corporations because there's basically no regulation, and uh, Delaware has all these companies where they've got just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of of, uh, uh, you know, uh, little mailboxes, postal boxes that are, represent corporations from literally all over the world, but particularly all over the United States. Um, and uh, you get a corporate agent in Delaware so that you don't, you're not hassled by your own local state. It's an amazing story. And and this is something that, you know, Amazon engages in today. They shop around to see which state or which locality is going to give them the best deal. They had a situation, I remember this being reported about four or five years ago, where, some places were saying, you know, Amazon, you can set up here and also we'll have your employees pay taxes to you. So they were acting as like a de facto city. So in other words, yeah. corporations uh, are in the driver's seat here. Um, tell me about the, the Tillman Act of 1907, because today we think of money in politics almost as like this is just the state of nature. This is just how it is. It could be no other way. But there was a time when they really cracked down on corporate money in politics. Oh yeah, this uh, you know, and 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 this era really began, I think, with Grover Cleveland's uh, 1887 uh, State of the Union address. You know, where he specifically identified. He said, "We we see uh, this was before the part. You know, this is the paragraph before he said, you know, the iron heel of corporations is on the neck of the average American." He see he said, "We see trusts and combinations in business that you know we've never seen before um, that are oppressing the people and and the states." And uh, this movement and, and, and people were, you know, kind of pissed off about, you know, Rockefeller and what he was doing. In fact, it's uh, in the early 1900s, uh, you know, Rockefeller was trying to clean up his image. He, he, he would go out on the streets of New York and pass out shiny new dimes to, to the mm. street urchins, call the, call the press in. Um, so uh, it became a political issue. And uh, in 1901, McKinley, the president McKinley uh, died. He was he was assassinated and his vice president, Teddy Roosevelt, became president and both were Republicans. McKinley was not particularly a progressive, um, but Teddy Roosevelt was a, a genuine progressive, kind of a Bernie Sanders progressive. And uh, he got on his high horse, uh, kind of literally about this. He loved to ride horses um, and said, uh, this is wrong. These corporations, the way that they're abusing workers, the way that they're abusing the people um, and, uh, and, and, the, and the fact that corporations are allowed to buy uh, politicians. It's just wrong. And so uh, he started, in fact, this was the cornerstone of his 1904 campaign for re-election as president or for his first real election because he had just come in as vice president. 
was that he was going to uh, he was going to stop corporations from bribing politicians because basically every all across the country, um, you know, federal, uh, particularly federal, he wanted this to be a, a model for state laws, and, and a lot of states adopted this. By the way, um, in fact, most states adopted this within a, within a couple of decades. Um, but the, the but he pushed through the Tillman Act of 1907, which says that if a corporation or any agent of a corporation, an executive, a lawyer working on behalf of the corporation, what today we would call a lobbyist, if any person on behalf of any corporation gives any money or thing of value whatsoever to any candidate for federal office, they go to prison. And 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 that law stood for a long, long time. I, you know, uh, I, I'm not sure if you're old enough to remember when Tom DeLay got busted down in Texas. He was Speaker of the House of Representatives, and he got busted in Texas uh, for corruption. And it was because Texas had a law like that that said it was illegal for corporations to give money directly to the campaigns of candidates for federal office. And Tom DeLay was a United States uh, member of the House of Representatives. He was also Speaker of the House at the time. And uh, he got busted under this Texas law. Uh, most of those laws have now been uh, eliminated. Uh, the Tillman Act was overturned by the Supreme Court um, in, uh, I believe, in the 1978 uh, First National Bank versus Bellotti case. And I, 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 it's possible I'm wrong, and it might have been the Citizens United was what finally killed the Tillman Act. Um, but I'm pretty sure it was uh, First National Bank versus Bellotti. I'd have to go back and look it up. But it no, it's no longer on the books. I mean, it's still on the books, but it's no longer enforceable. Right. And, and this is something that they're still building off this today because I covered a story the other week about this new case that the Supreme Court is hearing. Uh, a top aide of Andrew Cuomo effectively took bribes and then delivered favors. But the the question, the um, the Supreme Court justices, honestly, even the the more liberal ones were saying, well, when he took the bribe, he wasn't uh, officially with Andrew Cuomo at the time. He had resigned and then he had gotten back with him. And they said, well, since he wasn't acting as a government official in the time frame that he took the bribe, it looks like what they're about to decide is this: they're going to overthrow uh, a corruption conviction that came out of Manhattan, which to me is just astonishing. So that leads to my next question, which is, uh, is it is it your assertion that uh, money in politics is like the key reason why we don't already have a thriving Scandinavian style social democracy. Because when I look at the polls, I see that all these issues that we care about are through the roof. I mean, if you looked at Bernie's platform in 2016 or 2020 and you poll people on the individual issues, on virtually every one, people are like, I'm with Bernie. I want more unions. I want a higher minimum wage. Uh, you know, I want to tax the wealthy more. I want uh, universal health care. But then this doesn't seem to translate into our politicians serving us and getting these things through. So is the main thing that's blocking us basically the structural impact of money in politics? Yeah, and and we don't want our community to be polluted. And we would like the uh, precautionary principle in the United States, like Europe has, where before you put a chemical in our food supply or in, in the packaging for, for our food or, or even, uh, you know, uh, baby food, uh, you've got to prove that it's safe. Right now, the United States is the outlier. Uh, in the United States, we wait until it starts killing people or is poisoning people, or we discover that, like we've you know recent, recently in the last five or ten years, really discovered that you know uh, little girls now are are, are beginning their periods 
uh, two years earlier than they were 40 years ago. And it's apparently because of hormone bending chemicals that are in our food supply. Well, those, those are illegal in Europe, have been for forever, because in Europe, you've got to prove a chemical is safe before you put it into the food supply or into the air or anywhere else where it can be ingested. Here in the United States, we, we take the libertarian perspective, which is you know, we'll litigate this through the courts. Uh, we'll let them deal with it. And so we've got 80,000 unregulated chemicals right now in our environment. Um, so there's this whole spectrum of of, of, of of law. I mean, all the things that you mentioned, Kyle, and 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 these, you know, really serious impacting our, our lives laws that people generally, if you ask them about, yes, I'd like a clean environment. Yes, I'd like safe cars. Yes, I would like, you know, et cetera. But um, in some cases, it's right wing billionaires or or just wealthy people who want to maintain their their status. Uh, you know, they want to keep their taxes low. That's another thing. If you ask people about, you know, should billionaires be paying a higher tax rate um, up until from 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 the 1930s, from the Roosevelt administration until uh, until the 1980s, until the Reagan administration. We had a top tax rate that ran between 91% and 74%. It was 91% up until 1967. And then Lyndon Johnson dropped it down to 74%. But he actually, in the process, raised the amount of tax that rich people were paying, the morbidly rich, um, because he closed up so many tax loopholes. And so when Reagan came in, it was 74%. And he dropped it down to 25%. And then it bounced back up to 27% the next year. Um and, uh, you know, all of these things, uh, whether it's taxing wealthy people so that we could use that money to, to fund a national health care system or, you know, give kids free college education, or whether it's simply laws that would do those things, um, you know, right across the board, the thing that keeps blowing up legislation, uh, you know, even right now, for example, you know, Gigi Sohn, Joe Biden wants to put her on the Federal Communications Commission. And she's she will be the vote that will bring back net neutrality. Right now, your internet service provider can spy on everything you do. They can they can monitor every website you visit. They know how long you were on that website. They can track every keystroke you type. Uh, they can read every one of your emails, and they do. And they and they take this information and they sell it to the highest bidder. And you know that used to be illegal. But when Donald Trump came into office in 2017, the, the ISP corporations came in and started pouring money into his pockets and into the pockets of the of the Republican Party, and uh, they overturned net neutrality. And so Gigi Sohn wants to get on the FCC and bring back net neutrality, and Joe Biden wants it to happen. And, uh, you know, it's in the Senate Commerce Committee, and it's got a week or two to come out, um, you know, whether whether her nomination is going to be approved by or not by the Senate. And uh, every single Republican on the committee uh, is saying no. And what we're waiting for, Kirsten Sinema is on the committee, and, and uh, we're waiting to see what she's going to say, because it's got to get out of committee before it can get to the floor of the Senate. And, and the telecom companies, Comcast specifically, has hired uh, a former uh, colleague uh, from the state legislature in Arizona of, of Kirsten Sinema's and uh, Joe Manchin's uh, former chief of staff to lobby mm. these people. I mean, you know, again, it's money in politics, right? And, uh, you know, so it may well be, in fact, in all probability, ISPs will continue to spy on us. And if you don't want to get spied on, you're going to have to buy a VPN. I mean, there are ways around it, but there, it's a pain in the ass to keep from being spied on by corporations. That's right. just one small yeah. example. Yeah. So so let me ask you this, Tom, because this is a debate that Crystal and I have pretty often. Um, there is some evidence of 
basically the neoliberal era coming to an end. So, for example, you have uh, Joe Biden doing his um, student debt reduction. Now, that's been blocked by right wing courts. But, you know, there was an effort there. Hey, I'm going to uh, reduce student loan debt. Uh, we now have a 15 percent corporate minimum tax rate as part of the Inflation Reduction Act. There we're actually onshoring 350,000 jobs, which is the first time in my lifetime that we're actually onshoring jobs and not offshoring jobs. There's now a 1% tax on stock buybacks. Uh, the IRA lowered some prescription drug, drug prices for seniors. So I could sit here and go through a number of things that are, you know, materially improving people's lives. But, uh, you know, my take on it is I think what we're seeing is like the left flank of neoliberalism still. I'm not sure we can do a clean break from neoliberalism, particularly because of these structural factors that we've been talking about this entire interview so far. I think that as long as you have the money in politics, the best you can hope for is kind of like just a, a reasonable status quo manager who does some tweaks around the edges to improve people's lives. Do you agree with me on that? Or are you more in the crystal camp where she says, almost as a matter of necessity, we're coming to the end of the neoliberal era because if they don't end the neoliberal era, then, you know, you're going to have bodies in the streets. You're going to have mass movements. You're going to have social upheaval. And so her perspective is, you know, you could even argue from a national security perspective, we're going to come out of the neoliberal era because, you know, you have the rise of China and, and we're sort of lagging behind and we're decrepit and rotten from within. So uh, who do you think is correct there? I think you both are actually. Um, I mean, you know, first let's, uh, for people who are watching and don't know what we're talking about when we throw around the word neoliberalism, let's very quickly define it. Um, neoliberalism was a, a political and economic theory that was uh, developed in the 1940s in Europe um, uh, by most famously uh, von Mises, uh, von Hayek, and, and Milton Friedman. And uh, it argues that the marketplace should make all decisions, basically, rather than politicians or bureaucrats, um, that uh, government should not be involved in regulating the activity of businesses, that that should be the result of businesses being having their hands slapped in, in court lawsuits by, by, by the people. Labor unions should not exist. Uh, there should be this thing called free trade, which really means corporations should be free to search the world for the cheapest possible labor. Uh, we need to end the social safety net, get rid of Social Security, Medicare, privatize all those things, do away with food stamps, stuff like that. Cut taxes on the very wealthy and on corporations down to virtually nothing because they are the productive ones. They're the makers, not the takers. And uh, that monopolies are not a bad thing, that monopolies are actually a sign that the marketplace is working. That's neoliberalism. And <clears throat> you're absolutely right. Joe Biden is the first Democrat. Um, since Jimmy Carter, and Jimmy Carter was in the last year of his presidency actually starting to embrace neoliberalism. This this became a thing in a big way in the in the world in 1978 with uh, the election of Margaret Thatcher as Prime Minister of the UK, and then of course Ronald Reagan came in in 1980 and made it essentially the official policy of the United States. Um, and and uh, you know and now it's gone all around the world. Frankly, neoliberalism has captured governments all over the world. It's captured the government of South Africa. It's captured the government of India. It's captured the government of the Philippines. And in most cases, what it does is it leads those governments to become essentially um, corrupt and ultimately uh, pseudo-fascistic. And <clears throat> excuse me. And I, and I, I, I'm of the opinion that uh, Biden and many most of the Democrats 
um, across the board are are preparing to say or are saying enough already. This is not good for democracy. It's not good for America. We're going to stop embracing this policy and we're going to start walking back from it. Um, the it, it is happening slowly. <clears throat> and um, but I but I don't think it's I think it's inexorable. I don't think that they're going to be able to stop this this pullback from neoliberalism because the neoliberalism experiment, the logical endpoint of it was the Trump presidency. And mm. and and increasingly Americans are realizing that they don't want that. Stanley Turchin uh has written three books about the 40-year cycles within politics. And Strauss and Howe wrote a, a brilliant book called The Fourth Turning um, <clears throat> about an 80-year cycle in politics. And basically what Strauss and Howe say is that basically every 80 years you have a, a giant reboot. It's it's the time when when the institutional memory in the country is lost, where the you know the the older people who remember how things were are dead, and so you know we make all the same mistakes all over again. And so you know 80 years ago we had the Great Depression and the and World War II. 80 years before that we had the Panic of 1856 which was the result of deregulation of banks and uh, that Andrew Jackson had started and uh, and the Civil War. 80 years before that, you had the Panic of 1771, followed by the American Revolution. 80 years before that, there was another one. And that, that's in Strauss and Howe's book. But then Turchin comes along and he says, within that 80-year block, there's two cycles. There's a swing to the right and then a swing to the left, or a swing to the left and then a swing to the right, depending on where you start your you know calculations. And um, everything I can see indicates that they're both absolutely right, that we are coming to the end of an 80-year cycle um, that typically ends with an economic crisis and a world war, which is not good news, but maybe we can, uh, maybe we can be the, the, the first time in, in four cycles here that breaks that. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, Russia doesn't look like they're making it easy, nor does China with Taiwan. Um, and and whether or not there'll be an economic crash or whether we you know we can get through this. But I think that the 40-year cycle of conservatism that started with the election of Ronald Reagan in 1980, I think that cycle, that Turchin cycle, has has come to an end. And we are now entering a, a progressive era. We're leaving neoliberalism behind. And um uh, I think that's a good thing. I just don't think it's gonna happen like that. But I think that if we can get through the 2024 presidential election without going fascist, that the the future actually, politically speaking, I, I realize we've got massive challenges uh, with regard to our climate, um, but the future politically, I think, is going to look really good. Yeah. See, Tom, that's what I fear. It's the... Um the fake populism of the right that Trump harnessed in 2016 and that DeSantis is potentially set up to harness moving forward from now. I fear that, um, you know, when you have such degradation in society that, yeah, you're going to go, you're either going to go the far right route or you're going to go Bernie Sanders style social democracy. And, you know, I just see little things every now and then that scare me because, you know, in many ways, I feel like the Democrats aren't up to the moment. So, like, for example, uh, what happened recently with this potential railroad strike where, you know, Biden stepped in, he negotiated um, a temporary deal, but then the unions rejected it. And then Congress sort of forced this deal onto unions and they did a separate bill for seven uh, days paid sick leave. And I look at that and, you know, everybody's saying the same thing. Why wouldn't you put the seven day sick leave 
in the bill so that it's a must pass because then you have your leverage or just don't do anything and then let the rail <laughs> railroad workers go on strike to try to get more paid time off. And so when you see and to be fair to Biden, I like I said, I see I see him doing things on both sides of the both sides of this equation. I think he's uh, he's certainly more progressive than Obama was in terms of how he governs way more progressive than than Bill Clinton. But then every now and then I see like he flat out sided with management and that railroad strike. And I think the more you see Democrats do that kind of stuff, that's what could lead to the rise of, of what I call the fake populist right. Do you agree with that assessment? More or less. Yeah, I, I think there's two two separate issues there. And, and, and one is, you know, kind of the you know, uh, Trump's harnessing populism. And the other is the railroad agreement. I mean, you know, the management didn't want this agreement as it is either. You know, the rail. My nephew is a railroad worker. Um, I, you know, so I've been kind of hearing this from the inside. He's very active with the unions, and we had the president, in fact, of his union on my program. And you know, uh, management uh, is unhappy about the fact that they're having to give a pretty substantial pay raise to all these people. But the seven seven sick days is just, you know, absurd that that wasn't in there. So, so yeah, I, I'm agreeing with you that there, I mean, we're still in a neoliberal era. We're, we're kind of slowly crawling out of this hole, but all the structural stuff is still there. The railroads can still buy off members of Congress as they clearly did in this case. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the, the, the danger of the fake populism though, I think is the larger issue that you, that you raised Kyle. And, and that's the one that, you know, had you asked me this question in 2020 uh, or in 2019, um, when I when I uh, actually in 2020 was when I wrote and and published uh, the 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 hidden history of American oligarchy, and which is a, a warning against Trump and Trumpism and you know uh, you know the rise of the right in the United States, and I was actually starting to get quite pessimistic. I was still very hopeful. Um, and part of what gave me hope was, you know, reading the histories of the, the Turchin and Strauss and Howard. <laughs> but um, and I was seeing a lot of evidence of it. I mean, you know, Bernie, I think in I, I think America was ready to end neoliberalism in yeah. 2000, 2016, certainly with the Bernie candidacy. And they thought that Trump was going to end neoliberalism. He campaigned against it. You know, he said he was going to he was going to strengthen unions. He was going to give everybody health care that was going to be cheaper than Obamacare and better. He was going to you know, he was going to give everybody free college where he was going to improve our schools. He was he was going to uh, raise taxes on the rich so much that his rich friends wouldn't talk to him anymore. He was going to bring home our jobs. I mean, all of those things were lies, but people voted for them. And and that that was kind of the bad news. But the, I think the good news is that and we're, and we're seeing this now politically is that to a large extent, people realize that those were all lies. Now, there are still many politicians who are running on fake populism. Um, you know, most of you know, your your statewide candidates, uh, you know, your senators, your Republican senators are still running on fake populism. Um, but I, I I think it's running out of steam, frankly. So yeah. I you know I'm I'm not quite as worried that this is yeah. the end of liberal I agree. democracy. I agree with that point because you see, like the the Trump backed candidates did the worst. You had like you know generic Republicans who did better in the previous election compared to the ones that are in the Trump model. Um, so let me ask you this because uh, you just taught me this recently. And I had like one of those light bulb moments when I heard you talking about it. Cause I was like, how did I not know this until this point? Right? Like I'm a guy with a political science degree. I've been doing this since 2012 and I didn't know this court stripping. 
So this is something I don't think I look, I think my audience is relatively educated. I don't think they know what this is. So talk a little bit about court stripping, because I thought when I heard you discuss this, I thought, well, hold on now. That's the ticket. Like, that's the thing that we need in order to sort of dig out of the hole that we're in. Yeah. Article three of the United States Constitution. I'm looking around here for my little pocket constitution, but my desk is such a mess. I don't remember where it is. <laughs> Article three of the, of the U.S. Constitution um, it, it defines the courts. Uh, when they put together the Constitution, you know, there's this myth in that we teach in civics, in fact, that we have three co-equal branches of government. They are not co-equal. They were not designed to be co-equal. Nobody ever talked about them being co-equal in the Constitutional Convention of 1787 in Philadelphia. It's a myth. The, the Article One, which defines Congress, is three times larger than Article Three that defines uh, the, the courts. It's twice as large as Article Two, which defines the presidency. The Congress was supposed to be the first among equals to the extent that they were even equal. And Article Three, which creates, which gives Congress the power to create the court system. The court system literally was created by Congress, not by the Constitution. And it says, you know, the Congress may create a federal court system. And, a, and a, I guess Article Three arguably creates the Supreme Court, but that's about it. Um, Article Three says that the Supreme Court shall, Section Two of Article Three says that the Supreme Court shall operate under regulations defined by Congress, and and within the constraint of exceptions defined by Congress. So this whole idea that, that the Supreme Court or any court in the United States can say this law that was passed by Congress or passed by the state legislature and signed by the president or signed by the governor, this law is a violation of the United States Constitution, and therefore we're going to strike this down. That power is not found in the Constitution. Mm. It's called judicial review. And there was a debate about it at the convention. And you can read that debate in James Madison's notes. But there was no conclusion um, other than that we're not going to explicitly put judicial review into the Constitution, which actually is a conclusion. It's not there. Right. Um, and and uh, so the court was, you know, the court has two jurisdictions that are defined in Article 3, Section 2. The first is they're the first place where you go if you've got a debate between the states or between the federal government and a foreign country. And then the second thing that they do is they're the, the court of last resort. The buck has to stop someplace. So they're what's called the court of final appeals. So, you know, you sue me, I win, you I, or you win, and I, then I appeal that to a higher court, and you win, and then you appeal, and then I, you know, and we just keep going back and forth until finally it hits the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court makes a final decision. In fact, the court was kind of it was often referred to in the late 1700s as the chickens and dogs court, because so many cases America was so rural back then. So many cases had to do with you know dogs killing neighbors' chickens, um, not literally, but you know that I mean those kind of things. Actually, right, there were yeah. some literal cases. <laughs> but in 1803, uh, John Marshall, who was uh, Thomas Jefferson's third cousin and bitter enemy, who John Adams put on the court a week before Adams had to turn the keys over to Jefferson in March of 1801. Uh, and he did it just to piss off Jefferson. They hadn't spoken for two years, uh, even though Jefferson was vice president at the time. So in 1803, President Jefferson is president and John Marshall is the head of the Supreme Court. And in this case, Marbury versus Madison, uh, they struck down part of the Judiciary Act of 1797, as I recall, or 1793, I forget. Um, that in part created the federal court system. And 
Jefferson went nuts. He said, you know, the president of the United States and author of the Declaration of Independence just went nuts. And he said, if this decision stands, then the Constitution has become a thing of wax to be molded in by the hands of the Supreme Court into whatever form it wants. He said, this is the beginning of a judicial tyranny. He said, this has placed the Supreme Court above the, above the, above the legislature and above the presidency. And he was so pissed off about this. He wrote letters to everybody he knew. It was, it was a big deal in the newspapers. So it was such a hot topic that the Supreme Court at that point said, okay, okay, we stop, we give. And for the rest of John Marshall's tenure as Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court, I think he was the longest serving one in history, he might be second longest now, um, the Supreme Court did not again decide a case based on the Constitution. Uh, they just didn't do it. Um, until 1856. This was the second time that they did. I mean, there were some smaller cases that had to do with the Constitution. But in 1856, you know, uh, like, well, actually, they, they argued that uh, the, the Second National Bank was constitutional. And Andrew Jackson just said, screw you guys, I'm going to shut it down anyway. Um, uh, but in 1856, Roger Tawney, who was then the Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court, decided that he was going to solve the slavery problem. And he did this in a case called Dred Scott v. Sanford, in which he ruled, the Supreme Court ruled, that every black person in America, not just in the South, but every black person in America was, was no longer had any human rights under the U.S. Constitution and was subject to ownership by any white person. So, you know, presumably in Chicago or in New York City, if a black person was walking down the street who was free, a white person could say, ah, you're mine now and capture them. Well, you know, the entire North just ignored this. They just ignored the Supreme Court. And when Lincoln was elected in 1860 and became president in 61, um, he ignored it, too. And his and he explicitly ignored it and, and said, you know, I'm not going to enforce this. He said it's a it's a sad thing for Mr. Scott. I mean, we'll acknowledge that the court is the final court of appeals. And poor Mr. Dred Scott is going to have to go back to his master. But nobody else. You know, We're not recognizing this as law. And so, you know, that's kind of the history of judicial review up until the Civil War. Well, after the Civil War in the 1870s, during the Reconstruction era, um, you know, these corporations started, this was the, the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, or the, the really, you know, when it was really getting under steam, you know, Lincoln had built the railroads all across the United States and all that sort of thing. And, and uh, you know, steel was huge and, and all these giant Corporate monopolies were rising, you know, the Carnegie uh, Empire, the Rockefeller Empire, the Mellon Empire, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and um, so the, the court then started using the Constitution as the basis for its decisions, um, just occasionally, but they started doing that. And uh, by the turn of the century, by 1900, they were doing it more and more frequently. And by by really the 1930s, the by the 1920s, the the slaughterhouse cases that was the 19 teens, as I recall, on uh, the 1920s and the 1930s, they started doing it regularly, and they were using the Constitution to strike down Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal, um, which led to a whole another conflict that we can discuss if you'd like. But um, to to wrap this story up, um, in 1981, when Reagan became president. He hired a young lawyer to uh, a young hotshot lawyer into the Justice Department to figure out how to overturn Brown versus Board of Education, the 1954 decision that that ended segregated schools, and Roe v. Wade, the 1973 decision. 
And that young lawyer spent a year examining all this history and going back and literally reading the Constitutional Convention and reading the Federalist Papers and getting into Thomas Jefferson's head. And he wrote this 27-page memo in which he said, you know, all Congress has to do is write a law that says under Article 3, Section 2, we are we are going to uh, say that segregated schools are legal in the United States and that abortion is illegal in the United States and the Supreme Court may not rule on these issues. We're going to strip the court of its jurisdiction to, to make constitutional decisions like this. And uh, he submitted that to Reagan. Uh, Reagan you know, looked it over. The Republicans looked it over. There was a big debate in the GOP about it. And, and over 30 bills, as I recall, I think ultimately it, it was over 100 during Reagan's presidency. But just in that one year, 1981, there were over 30 bills submitted by Republicans in the House of Representatives that contained court stripping language that said, you know, we want to do this and the Supreme Court can't look, at, look over our shoulders. They cannot rule on this. None of them, actually one or two of them passed into law, but, you know, the court stripping provisions were never used. Um, and Reagan ultimately decided that it was a political battle. He probably wouldn't win. But that young lawyer then went on to bigger and better things in 2000 um, uh, when Bush, uh, you know, lost to Al Gore down in Florida. Uh, or, or it looked like he was going to lose with a recount. That lawyer went down to Florida along with another lawyer by the name of Brett Kavanaugh. Uh, that lawyer went down to Florida to help out the Bush campaign to figure out, you know, to stop the, uh, the to, to figure out how best to uh, get the Supreme Court to stop the election and to stop the recount and uh, was successful. And that lawyer's name is John Roberts, and he's now the chief justice of the U.S. Supreme Court. Mm, yeah. Wow. That's amazing. Uh, and it's it's, it's all, a cool story. It, it is. It really is. And it, it's just it's also just astonishing to me that. This is something that hasn't been brought up in in modern political debate. Like right wingers are real familiar with this, Kyle. Back, you know, my my dad was a Republican activist and took me to a John Birch Society meeting when I was thirteen. You know, like in nineteen sixty, wow. what it would have been uh, nineteen sixty five, and um, uh, the the JBS was all over this. The Republican Party. There was a lot of talk in the Republican Party about using court stripping to overturn Brown. They wanted to use it against Brown versus Board of Education. So, and you had all these boards around the country impeach Earl Warren. It was a thing, but Democrats never really paid attention to there's, it. And and you know what? It's exactly what the left needs because the thing that I fear, <laughs> I believe so. Everybody on the left fears, like even if we had, say, a Bernie Sanders presidency, and he's you know passing phenomenal legislation and doing great executive orders. The idea that you could just run into a brick wall because uh, this effectively authoritarian body says, I declare you're not allowed to do this because this doesn't compart with the, the supreme law of the land, the Constitution. That, I mean, it's just, it's a death knell for democracy. Yeah, yeah. I, I you know, I was amazed when I was writing uh, The Hidden History of the Supreme Court and I was researching uh, judicial review and I I, I I don't even remember exactly what it was that led me to it, but I discovered this 27-page report that John Roberts wrote for for uh, Ronald Reagan that I don't think anybody had ever seen before. Uh, you know, I mean, it's just it's just amazing. And so I quote from it extensively in my book because um, uh, he just laid it out. I mean, you know, he laid out the whole argument. 
Yeah. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. All right. So Tom, one more question for you. And I know this is, I know we, we could end up going on this for an hour, but I think this is some history that it's super important for the audience to know. And by the way, everybody who's listening to this, you have to go get all of the hidden history books. I've, I think, I think I, uh, I listened to the audiobook of all of them. I may have missed one. I'm not sure, but, um, there's such phenomenal books. It's just packed full of historical knowledge that everybody needs to know. I give it my highest endorsement possible. So definitely go buy Tom Hartman's books, uh, Hidden History books, Hidden History of Oligarchy, Monopoly, uh, Monopolies, um, Neoliberalism, uh, the Second Amendment. There's just amazing stuff. So Friends. Yeah, there you go. And that's exactly what I was going to ask about now, Tom, is so a lot of people, when you talk about the Second Amendment, even people on the left have this assumption that like, Oh, well, the whole point of that is so the population can rise up to stop a tyrannical government if need be. This is like the default when assumption. You, excuse me, I missed a word there. When you talk about what? When you talk about the Second Amendment, a lot of people think. Oh, the Second Amendment. Okay, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, go, a, go for it. A lot of people think it's just their default assumption that, you know, it's just to stop a tyrannical government from going crazy, you need to have the population armed to keep a check on that. But when you look at the history of the Second Amendment, that's just not true at all. It's like a modern myth that's that's spread like a virus through, through the population. So tell everybody what the founders were debating with the Second Amendment and like what the purpose of it really was. Yeah. Um, first of all, up until 19, up until the 1970s, um, nobody had ever that I can find suggested no no serious person no actual you know like elected politician uh or a serious thinker had ever suggested that uh an armed populace will prevent a tyrannical government um it it, it just you know it, it was never part of the of the dialogue um the debate that happened in in congress or in in the uh, constitutional convention in 1787 in philadelphia um had to do with uh, and uh, that that ultimately led to the Second Amendment had to do with um, whether a standing army was a threat to a nation. Um, and in fact, that phrase, a standing army can be a threat to a nation, appears in the constitutions of several states today, even. Um, and uh, so their concern was, you know, these guys were students of history and they had uh, particularly European history. I mean, you know, their, their ancestors were all Europeans and they, they, they knew that over and over and over again, there had been countries that had been overthrown in Europe by their armies. They had been overthrown from within. And so the question was, how do you, how do you prevent that from happening? And the solution in their mind was that there should be no federal army during times of peace that the that what the way that we should construct our government and and by the way Switzerland has done this for almost 200 years i mean this is not this is not a radical idea this is right now how switzerland runs its you know, they've kind of gotten away from it in the last 3 decades but um and so their their solution was that each state would have a militia that would be under the control of the governor of the state and that the militia would regularly train and all that kind of stuff. And that if the United States was invaded, that those militias would then be activated by the president. And the, the ability, by the way, of the president to call up the militia is in the Constitution, not just the Second Amendment. It's in the body of the Constitution itself. And, and um, that that 
that that power, then, then that would be the army. And the founders were really fond of this idea, particularly Jefferson. He was, he was all over this. Uh, so much so that uh, after the Revolutionary War, uh, when, uh, you know, the Revolutionary War basically, you know, ended in the, in the mid 1780s, um, uh, you know, there is a specific date, but, um, you know, it, it kind of, in any case, um, by 1801, when Jefferson became president, there were still 300,000 men in the United States Army. And Jefferson cut that down to around 6,000. And, uh, you know, as a way of saying, you know, we don't think that we should have an army during time of peace. And that was what the Second Amendment was all about, was to facilitate the creation of these state militias. Um, Jefferson's, the other thing that made its way into the Constitution, and you'll find this in Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution, was the Congress, they wanted Congress to be forced every two years to decide whether America would continue to have a standing army during time of peace. And so this is why the NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Act, uh, the basically the funding of the Pentagon, this is why it's such a big deal every two years, is because it's literally the only thing in the Constitution where the Constitution says Congress must decide every two years whether to continue to have this. And so if Congress does not fund the Pentagon every two years, it ceases to exist. <laughs> I mean, not literally, because it's got so much institutional inertia, but legally, and uh, or at least with regard to funding. And uh, so that was why they created the Second Amendment. Uh, and, and Jefferson's uh, idea blew up in his face because uh, when his successor and his uh, protege, James, James Madison, became president in, uh, 1709, in 1809. Um, just a couple of years later, the British and the Canadians invaded, and we didn't have an army anymore because Jefferson had stripped us of it. And when they tried to call up the militia, they discovered that the states had not been maintaining their militias. And in fact, in the southern states, the militias were the slave patrols also. They, they were one and the same thing. And the southern states did not want to release the slave patrols because they were afraid of slave uprisings. And so uh, basically ever since, and so we got our butts kicked and, and the British made it all the way to Washington, D.C. and burned down the or burned part of the White House. Dolly Madison famously, you know, James Madison's wife famously saved that portrait of President uh, Washington. So ever since basically, you know, 1815, uh, ever since the War of 1812 was ended, ever since then, there's never been a debate about whether we should disband the army and use the state militias during a time of war um, or, you know, disband it during time of peace and use the state militias during a time of war. Um, instead, we've just routinely authorized it. But in 1974, as I recall, it's in my book, it's in my book on guns in the Second Amendment, um, a high school student wrote an article that got published in The Rifleman, which was the NRA's publication. And this was before the NRA was taken over by the right-wing crazies. That happened about a, you know, half a decade later, um, in which he argued that everybody in America should have a gun in order to stop a, uh, the rise of, of a, uh, an oppressive, a communist government. <laughs> and this was basically reflecting the point of view of the John Birch Society, um, you know, the, the, the hardcore right-wingers in America. And uh, and this mythology just kind of took hold on the right, particularly among the John Birch Society people. And now it's you know widely quoted and believed among Republicans. But it's there's not a not a shred of history behind it or truth to it. So uh, ironically, 
the founders fearing standing armies led to the passage of the Second Amendment. So in a sense, the fear of the standing armies was like, oh, if we have a standing army, they could overthrow us. So in a sense, it's like right. the Second Amendment is the exact opposite of what the, you know, the, the thought of what it is today. Right. Like it, that's it, correct. It's, right. It's, it's amazing. And it's not ambiguous. Right. It's not ambiguous. Yeah. I mean, you can you can read it in the in the debates in the in the constitutional record. You know that James Madison kept. It's 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 just amazing that you know when when uh, when the Heller decision came down, um, Scalia had to you know he wanted to make it sound like he was channeling the founders. He couldn't. There's nothing in <laughs> Heller from the founders. Wow. He found this old tract that an anti-federalist had published in the in the 1780s against the constitution and, and an anti-federalist one, you know, in 1789, the constitution was ratified. And there was this big debate that lasted two years about whether we should ratify the constitution. And he found this track that this guy in Pennsylvania, some obscure Pennsylvania legislator had written, um, you know, saying that people should have guns in case the government becomes oppressive. This was like the only place he could find it was this one obscure guy who nobody, you know, nobody even remembers his name. I don't remember his name. And I wrote the book about it. <laughs> and, and he quotes him in the Heller decision and says, yes, this is one of the founders. This is the founding generation. It's complete BS. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Tom, this was a, a real, real pleasure uh, talking to you. Like I've said, like I said, over the years, you've inspired me many times over. I've learned so much from you. Um, tell everybody where they can find you. I personally, I listen to your show on YouTube and sometimes when I'm driving, I'll listen on Sirius XM progress as well. So tell everybody where they can find you and what you're up to now. Well, I, you know, I do a radio and television program every day, and you can find all the information and all the st stations at TomHartman.com. And I publish uh, every day or five days a week uh, a free newsletter. It's at HartmanReport.com, where I just write an op-ed about the topic of the day. Um, and that's, you know, the, the vast majority, uh, well over 90% of all the people who subscribe just subscribe to the free edition. There's also a weekend thing that, you know, paid subscribers can get that's more of a news commentary. Uh, and 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 I'm working on the last book in the Hidden History series, uh, which is going to be the Hidden History of Democracy. And so I've been living in the brain of Ben Franklin and the Iroquois Confederacy here for the last year. And that book will be out next spring, maybe early next summer. Awesome. Well, Tom, keep up the great work, man. And I hope to talk to you again. Thanks. Thanks, thanks so much for having me on your podcast. It's great being here with you. Thank you. All right, guys, that was Tom Hartman. Um, he was originally with Air America Radio. I don't know how many of you are old enough to remember that, but for those of you who don't know, uh, the right wing has dominated the radio space forever. And look, there's a lot of money in it too because um, it, they're they're funded by these right wing think tanks and uh, they just, it was just, it was their medium the entire time. And there was an attempt uh, by some liberals to, okay, well, we need to compete with the right because you got Rush Limbaugh who's poisoning people's minds daily and we can't let that happen. So uh, they started Air America Radio. It had, you know, Al Franken was on there. You had Tom Hartman, guy by the name of uh, Mike Malloy. I'm trying to remember the other one. Sam Cedar was on there with Janine Garofalo back in the day. And it was like the attempt, like, okay, we're going to compete with right-wing radio. They didn't get, they, they didn't have nearly as many stations as the right did. And so eventually, you know, they they went belly up, right? But Tom Hartman has never stopped. And I could tell you, you know, I heard, I first heard him in the 2000s at some point. I don't remember the exact year. It was between 2000 and 2010. And uh, I was always super impressed with him from day one. He's a fountain of knowledge. I think he's phenomenal with his delivery 
and and how he gets his message across. Um, and ever since then, to this day, I, I've been following him. So like I said, I watch his show uh, on YouTube quite a bit. If it's not on YouTube, I'll, I'll drive in and I'll turn on uh, Sirius XM radio, which is uh, channel 127. And I'll listen every day from 12 in the afternoon, Eastern time to three. He does a show. Huge fan of all of his hidden history books. There's another great book uh, that he wrote called Screwed, The Undeclared War on the Middle Class. Uh, that was a book that I read basically as a kid and it helped like shape my politics. So uh, Crystal and I always joke around. Um, I say like, I think this guy is actually my dad. <laughs> like, like it feels like, it, you know, it's fun. And I love my my normal dad. He, he passed away in, uh, in 2011, passed away a while ago. Um, but like, when I'm listening to Tom's radio show or I'm reading one of his books, I'm like, I, I have that feeling of like, geez, this guy's my dad. Like, he feels like he's my dad. I didn't want to say that to him because I would have been super awkward. So I didn't. But I'm telling you guys now after the fact. Anyway, highly, highly, highly recommend you guys either listen to his stuff, read his books, go sign up on his website, man. Hey, show Tom Hartman that, uh, you know. His his little protege here <laughs> has some some clout and some sway as well, and give him a big old bump with uh, over at HartmanReport.com. You know, I, like you said, he's got some paid subscription subscription thing. At least sign up for free, do something because this guy, look, he deserves it. And um, you know, his numbers uh, on YouTube are not phenomenal, but that's that's not a him problem. That's an everybody else problem. It's like, oh my god, you guys haven't found the diamond in the rough yet. Here he is, <laughs> and like. You know, look, there's some issues where Tom and I uh, disagree. Obviously, we didn't get into them in the interview. Um, but whatever disagreements I may have with him are just nothing in comparison to the fountain of knowledge and information uh, that he is. So anyway, I hope you guys enjoyed that interview. I certainly enjoyed uh, conducting it. If you like this show, of course, there's a bunch of ways you can support it. So uh, the easy route is just um, to sign up on Substack for free. And uh, the way that works is you'll get the newsletters and you'll get the audio version of the podcast uh, every time it drops, right when it drops, usually on Saturdays is when the podcasts drop. Uh, and if you want to help out the show, you could pay five bucks a month and you get the video version of the show and you get it a day early, usually on Fridays. Um, and thank you so much to everybody who already does support this show. You guys mean the world to me and you make it possible for me to literally have a conversation with somebody who's who's a hero to me and, and an idol to me. So anyway, I hope you guys enjoyed it. I'll talk to you soon. Everybody have a great rest of your day.